It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long. And you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy, with your hosts, Eric, Isaac, and Caleb. Listen in as they discuss the 1968 film, 2001, A Space Odyssey. returning yet again to our Stanley Kubrick series, this time coming in for our eighth entry and the last entry in this series covering the uh, the 60s era of his films with 2001 A Space Odyssey. Potentially, I don't know, what do you guys think? Do you think this is the one that's maybe hit the biggest for him? Do you think this is like his biggest piece of his legacy? Or maybe The Shining? It's hard to say between the two of them. I don't think it's a hard question. I, I think without a doubt it's 2001. And that is certainly not because it's my favorite Kubrick movie or anything like that. Just considering the legacy and the impact of his day, I, I don't even think it's close. It's it's 2001 without a doubt. Yeah, the only reason I ask is because I feel like it's always been more of a film fan kind of a movie. Almost anyone can watch The Shining and get something out of it. This one I feel like is a little more high cost of entry and... There's a lot of folks out there who I feel like would not get much out of this at all, if they could even finish it, due to the uh, the slow pace. I would generally agree with what you just said. However, I have started to notice it pop up in the first-time reaction community on YouTube with the uh, Gen Zers and Young Millennials, and it's a lot of fun um, watching them watch this movie for the first time. And generally, I would say uh, I've never, ever seen one of them outright dislike it or find it boring well never there there are always some level of intrigue or at the very least amazed by the visuals and confounded at how the visuals were created yeah but of course they're watching it you know talking over it kind of interacting with an audience they're not just sitting in embracing the film which i feel like is the true way to experience especially a movie like 2001 sure so yeah it would not be the same effect um, but for this movie, I'm curious for you, Eric, when did you first see this? So while this wasn't the first um, Kubrick film I ever saw, it was around the time, and I brought this up on this podcast before, where I decided, okay, this is a thing I need to do. I need to go through all these films. Um, so it was possibly the first when I sat down and, and started to take this all seriously. And that was around... 2007-ish time frame. Now, I think I'd seen pieces of it before then, Mm -hmm. but 2007 is around the time when I watched the whole entire thing from start to finish for the first time. Yeah, and were uh, were your feelings positive at the time, or maybe more into that other crowd of, yeah, feeling it was boring or not really getting it? Oh, no, I never thought it was boring or anything like that. 
I guess I was kind of like that other crowd in the sense that I was already in just for like the visuals. Mm. I didn't have many thoughts about or deep thoughts about the actual content or story or meaning of the film until much later. Yeah, and how about you, Isaac? What's your uh, experience with this this flick here? Well, welcome, ladies and gentlemen, those in between and affiliated. Uh, thank you, Caleb, for having me back here. I uh, definitely appreciate uh, you bringing, uh, extending the offer to being a part of this discussion, and hopefully I'll do my best to give everybody here a intellectually stimulating conversation. Anyway, so... Uh, it's 2009, a very important year for me, very, I'd say a very uh, important year for me. And, well, you know, I, I, I mentioned this to you beforehand, that I was, this 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 was the year that I had watched, my dad watched uh, 2000, no, sorry, Terminator 1, and then I watched Aliens on my own, and then my dad showed me 2001. He rented it from, I believe, the library. Uh, it was, he was just at the library randomly, and he, he rented it to me, and I was like, oh man, okay. Because I, I think I had heard it by that point. I was like, what is this? It's like, you know, it's a very important science fiction film. I'm like, all right. And so we watch it and I, I'm i terrified. I'm I'm freaked out. Like the, the whole thing, like, you know, gives me the heebie-jeebies. And I think it's more of a horror film and like a suspense film than I, I think it's a, uh, you know, a science fiction film. I'm just like, because the meticulous and slow-paced nature of it and the fact that we're in a... He actually depicts spaces that should be where there is no sound. Uh, and, like, there's a haunting score at the beginning and, it's like, you know, a haunting score echoing throughout the piece. Yeah, I'm just like, I, this, I think I, it kind of averts me. I, it's kinda, it kind of definitely puts me there as, like, I, I don't want to go back to this because it kind of really terrifies me. And I guess over the years I warmed up to it. And uh, I don't think I had seen Yeah, I hadn't seen it until you and I saw it. Uh, I guess I could get my ticket stub out, but uh, I know you and I watched it. Was it a year or two ago? Uh, from you know, at, at the time of recording, and IMAX theater, correct? I believe it was 2018. I I could have brought out my tickets oh, wow. too, but yeah, because I don't think it would have been during the pandemic era. Yeah, I think it was for the whatever the anniversary was in that year. Uh, oh yeah, that makes sense. And I, I think they had just put out the uh, the 4K disc. I think. Maybe. Yeah, I think you're right. That was like the 50th anniversary. Yeah, and so we went to go see in the IMAX, and yeah, I I already knew your history. We actually spent many years discussing this film. Um, we were working together. It would come up relatively often. Mainly, we talked about Star Wars and uh, religion, but we we definitely talked about 2001. And I remember at the time you being like, oh, "Yeah, I don't really know if I want to go back to it." Like, uh, but I was like, "Oh fuck!" Like, we we got to watch this. And so yeah, I was very excited to see in the theater. I mean, free me in this film, this was one that I came to a little bit later. I think I was maybe 16 or 17, something like that. And I'd already had for a, a history with Kubrick, A Clockwork Orange was my favorite film when I was, I don't know, like 14, 15. That's a little nutty. So I'd watched that a ton. <laughs> I watched that a ton, and I always meant to get around to seeing this in full. Because, of course, it was always playing on TV. Uh, Space would play it once a year as Canadian science science fiction channel. And so I'd see it in fits and bursts, but never sat down and really embraced the movie and kind of sat with it. And by the time I got into it, too, I was already exploring surrealist filming, kind of getting my first taste of it. And this film would come up as like, oh, this is an example of great uh, surrealist science fiction. 
And so when I came to it, I was looking at it through that lens. And I fell in love with it then. And for a while, it was my favorite film. But uh, yeah, not not now, but I, I still really like it. If, if I may ask, Caleb, do you think this is potentially one of the first major, maybe not indie, but first major science fiction, or surrealist science fiction films? Oh, that's a good question. No. Well, it depends what you mean by major. Um, yeah, not not indie, like major by Hollywood, by standards of Hollywood, major motion picture. Again, this, uh, you know, this, this is like the proto pre blockbuster as eric would say so it's like i would count this as like is this like the first blockbuster surrealist film first blockbuster uh if we're talking about first block like big blockbuster science fiction film probably yes okay there's a i would think of alphaville from three years earlier but that was a french film but i know that it had a, a big impact at the time great science fiction surrealist film alphaville um but yeah this is probably the biggest budget one but when you think about it at the time, too, is I I don't know how... Well, yeah, it's an interesting question. <laughs> I don't know how to answer it, really. No, that's that's, that's definitely <laughs> fair. Eric, your thoughts? <laughs> On this subject? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Uh, probably, I mean, the way you say the question, it's probably the first. For some reason in my head, because um, I haven't seen much sci-fi prior to the 1950s, um, in my head, I was thinking for some reason that Metropolis, the film, comes off a little bit surrealist to me, but I don't That's exactly true. know why I think that, though, because I always have trouble trying to define what surrealism is and not just defining it, but defining examples of it because I never know, like, because, because Metropolis, it's not that it's presented in a surrealist way, yeah, but in my mind, it plays like in a surrealist way when I think about it. So that's why I don't know. I'm kind of confused by the whole thing. Yeah, it's got like expressionistic flourishes to it. Yes, that make it feel like it's not quite the real reality. Yes, that is, yes, exactly true. Yeah. So yeah, no, maybe that. Yeah, I guess you could maybe throw that. I don't know. It's it's a difficult question to answer. Yeah, of course. I feel it's... like we need to uh, yeah, open up some textbooks on definitions in the history of film to really get there to you it. go we have to we have to objectively state the rule set for what is considered <laughs> subjective but yeah i guess just jumping into the movie itself uh i don't know where to start should we start with the the dawn of man sequence or should we start with the, the overture <laughs> maybe we should, should we give it like a brief synopsis of what happens if you like uh well that's yeah i guess if you like i mean you could say it's uh up to interpretation what happens i suppose <laughs> although i don't know i at this point i feel like maybe the story's overexposed i think everyone can i don't know if many new viewers are coming to it that wouldn't be able to easily access pretty full readings but no that is true um but briefly there 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 is these these rectangles that's, that's not true there are these objects that Monoliths. have been thank you have been with humankind or at least been watching mankind uh, since b right before we we went from primates to you know Homo sapiens, and well still hominids I guess, um, and then it flash forwards to like 2001 or was it 1999? Thank you very much, 1999, and uh, we're encountering them again on the moon, and 
as we interact with it, it sends out a signal. And from there, we jump 18 months ahead in 2001. Uh, and on a, what is it, an interplanetary uh, exploration mission to find it. And just to. Well, be- not exactly. Actually, the ship was already. Well, okay, this isn't all explained in the movie. Um, some, this, some of this knowledge comes from the novel. But um, the ship was actually already on a mission to um, Jupiter with the crew having no knowledge of what was going on back on the moon, etc. But after the events of the moon, they were diverted to Saturn instead. I see. So yeah, that, that that's the uh that's the book though, correct? Cuz I don't believe it was Right. Again, this is all this is all not very clear in the movie. Well, yeah. Even the planets are reversed. Yeah, in the book and the novel. Yep. I was trying to like stick with uh the movie and not the novel. Cause... Sure, sure, you know, you're right. You're right. Yeah, and I'll I'll lay lay a little bit out of my uh cuz cuz I have read the novel twice. And I was purposely going to try to avoid bringing anything from that. but Same here. But that's partially why I say the story's overexposed. Because, yeah, if if you're a fan of the more abstract qualities of this movie and trying to figure out what the, the mystery is to it, yeah, reading that book, it's it's all there. There's, there's really no mystery there. It lays it all out flat. And I only read it maybe, I don't know, four years ago for the first time. So I was very glad that I had had many experiences with the film prior to that. So I didn't... Uh, kind of ruin the mystery i'd already you know sussed out my my bits for it but but i i won't mention it too much more but i will say do recommend the novels just uh yeah check out the film first but where, where were we <laughs> the dawn the overture the overture yes oh i remember in the theater when that when that started playing oh that was that was something i do miss overtures i wish that we can get it back i understand why we why we don't and why a lot of audiences wouldn't like it but yeah really great at setting the mood I think it's partially, yeah, modern audiences, but also, really, I think it also just comes down to, like, ad space. I mean, trailer space. <laughs> That's fair. Mm. But those were the days, and especially for long movies, um, like this one, I really wish they'd bring back, the, actually, the intermission. Oh, yes, 100%. Yeah, and it was great when we went to go see this, the intermission, because they included it, and everyone kind of left the theater, and you could just hear people lingering around the IMAX, just kind of talking about the film their experience with it that that's something you just don't get really nowadays now everyone just leaves the theater and they're all splintering off in their groups you don't really get that shared experience in that that same way well yeah not that in specific not in that specific way and i like that about um of course uh live theater when they have the intermission Mm, mm -hmm. and and when i saw the um the hateful eight roadshow um 70 millimeter they did the intermission for that too which i quite liked oh that's cool that's cool um, but I always really appreciate this whole Donna Man sequence. I think, even though I'm pretty sure all of it is set bound, they do a really good job disguising that. There's only a couple moments where you can kind of tell, and the people who are portraying the uh, the man apes, I think that they did a great job too. Yeah. The makeup, I I don't know. I, maybe my 4K version highlighted some of the weakness of it, but I always, back when I used to watch it on DVD, thought it just looked fantastic. Today, my first real thorough viewing of the 4k i was kind of like oh i can see a little bit of the you know a little bit of the edges of the mask stuff like that just a tiny bit here or there but yeah that's fair but still some great work and uh, the guy who designed them of course would go on to be a big uh, part of the star wars universe i forget his name uh any guys any guys know it <laughs> i used to know it i know who you're talking about though 
Yeah, designer of Yoda and uh, Jabba and many other creatures. So yeah, I wanted to continue to have a good career uh, influencing sci-fi going forward. I, I gotta say, uh, yeah, like as, as both of you said with the overture, um, it really did set the mood for me and I guess get people ready for, you know, what was to come. But for me, like, that's why I held off for a second. It, uh, this viewing, I was actually like, you know something? I, I wonder, I gotta wonder if, if Kubrick was at all influenced by, probably not, but she was at all taking cues or was looking at um, Fantasia. Oh, interesting. Because that like beginning that that beginning sequence, uh, it's uh, the overture itself. It's it's classical music, and even the sequence itself kind of mirrors the Dawn of Man. And we kind of see some interactions and some adaptations of of man itself. Uh, where it starts off as you know herbivores still kind of living within nature, and then slowly as you know we we, we move throughout the film, one of the film we as we move throughout the sequence, uh, we, we we like we, with the interaction of the monolith, we see uh, them discovering what is it uh, or getting the capacity to understand weaponry and then like to eat meat. Mm. Oh, that I never thought about Fantasia as a comparison that way. That that's quite interesting. Mm. I'm just thinking of, remember the sequence when it was uh, the creation of the universe or like the creation of the earth? Yeah, right of spring. Thank you. Yeah, that's that's it. The right of spring. Thank you. Yeah, and that makes sense. I mean, even the title, right of spring. But yeah, I never made that connection either. But I think it's an extremely apt comparison um, musically and stylistically. And not just for the opening of 2001, but even the film as a whole very interwoven concepts yeah and i was gonna save this till we get to a clockwork orange but i guess i'll bring it up now i feel like that movie was a huge influence on me just taking a deep dive into classical music when i was a teenager and so when i came to this later on it was like oh wow he's still doing it here and i think that this score is even or this uh collection of music is even better and so yeah both these movies played a, a big influence in my musical taste at that time i don't listen to it as much now but yeah, I never thought about it until you said it, but the score for this film, because it was one of the vinyl LPs I grew up on at a very young age, uh, was this score. And that's how I always knew about this movie, was because of the record album. And I heard that quite a lot growing up, and maybe that's what got me into classical music as well. Oh. Very well could be, because I, I started listening to classical at a very young age, and this is the first classical music i can remember hearing yeah and it's it's so good it really you, you forget about the fact that we're really not getting any dialogue for a very long time in this movie just because the music and the, the soundscape with the uh the man apes is all just so well done at least i don't uh, think about the dialogue i don't know i think that's one of the things that does bother people with this movie is just the lack of speaking some people yeah especially yeah modern audiences coming into it for the first time now i think and even back then, it received very mixed reviews. Yeah. There was a lot of people who just did not, were not there for it. Certainly. Yeah, because you could definitely imagine this coming off as overly pretentious or something. Avant-garde. That too, when it first came out. But I want to say it's like this and Wally, who are two of the movies that go the longest without any spoken dialogue. Um, I don't know what might surpass. Quest for um, Peace. <laughs> I don't think there's a single... Those, those don't count. <laughs> That's fair. 
Um, but yeah, the, the early introduction of the monolith with these almost men, apes, who are just struggling to survive all this. They're li living in a pretty barren place, even though they have all these animals around that they could eat. But yeah, it's not till the intervention of the monolith introducing them to technology that helps uh, them thrive. Now, hold on. Now, hold on. About that point you just said. Sure. See, I never really thought that or... Um, and then later, of course, I, I heard that argument put out by people that it was due to the monolith's influence. Mm -hmm. And I never really thought much of it until I became aware of the novel. So if you go strictly by the movie itself, like, is you could certainly make the case, but is it a strong argument? Yes. That it was the monolith? Explain, like, from the movie. Well, whatever these, whatever the people behind these monoliths are, whatever, whoever left this these tools they were there to help this this species with some potential that was failing to reach the ultimate goal of becoming the star child and we can talk about the way technology plays in that as we go along uh, but it's, it seems pretty clear that these these three monoliths that we see were intended to help uh i don't know if it's guide or manipulate their their growth as a species to get to that that certain point and I think as you go along, I, th I think it's pretty clear that's what they're doing. Well, certainly by the moon, there's intent upon um, these monoliths, whatever they are. Um, and I, I don't know, it's weird. I mean, everything you said makes sense. But for some reason, I don't know. I don't, you know, it makes sense. It's just I always, I guess previously, I, I kind of thought of the monoliths, not necessarily as they're, literal physical presence but i almost consider them like markers metaphorically mm -hmm. um what is this dead space and so i always yeah so i always considered like the first monolith is just sort of sort of being like a a metaphorical marker of like this is the beginning of major change um of entering a new a new age or new stage um but i mean but nothing you said is wrong though and it's like and again, it's it's definitely apparent there's an agenda by the moon monolith. Um, I don't know. I... Yeah, in this one, I I think it's all in the score. Whatever that creepy, ominous sound is that terrifies them and kind of puts them in awe and pulls them to it. Like I, I feel like that's almost in a way diegetic. Like it's something calling. Okay, that's also interesting. I I took it as an auditory explanation or q q sound cue um, for the audience to be like, what the apes are experiencing emotional-wise, this is what it sounds like for us. Mm. Uh, just so we can, like, we can relay, like, how terrified they are. Here's a creepy score. That's not the case, but that's just, like, my read of it. Oh, and it's creepy. It's definitely creepy. Yeah, and, and again, I, I guess this is where my brain is falling into the surrealist territory. Because, again, I'm literally seeing a monolith standing there in front of them but my brain i guess this is weird i haven't really thought about this much until right now i guess my brain just sees the monolith but doesn't see it as a literal object you can touch i mean even though i know it is i mean in in universe in the movie but my brain my brain thinks of it as as this species of hominid is having a breakthrough like in their brains or biology or whatever and then seeing this story of the monolith present itself to them it's like my brain thinks of that as like as a metaphor even though i'm literally seeing in the movie 
Mm-hmm. That's the best way I can describe it. Yeah, and I was I wasn't sure when to bring this up, but yeah, if there's one thing that I think was flawed in Kubrick's idea when uh, producing this film, because he he didn't know what to do. He wanted to make a sci-fi movie, but didn't really, you know, know know what he wanted to do there. And so he hooked up with that that author of the book. What's his Arthur C. Clarke? Thank you. And so they they came up with the ideas together and they produced it together. But Kubrick didn't want to make a straightforward story. He wanted to make it more abstract, more with a European kind of surrealist bent to it. But because they wrote their story at the same time, it was like you had someone with the literalist idea building the, the groundwork. And Kubrick at the surface would try to make it as abstract as he could, but he never really distanced himself from that base groundwork. And so in a way, I don't actually feel like this is a surrealist sci-fi film like people claim it is. I feel like it's just a, a very well-disguised, straightforward story, just with a lot of kind of abstract elements around the edges to yeah keep you mystified. But once you really do get to what the core of that is, I feel like it, I mean, it's just there. Most surrealist movies, you could get 10 people in a room, they could all watch it, and they could all come away with completely different readings because whoa, whoa, whoa. the person making it is not... Uh, but that happens with this movie, though. Yeah, but I think the once you understand what the clues are, it's it still has that underpinning from the book. Even before I read it, my reading was pretty clear. And then reading it, I was like, okay, yeah, this makes it even more unmystified. So even though I've, I haven't read it, but, you know, I've read the Cliff Notes version of, like, the explanation of the end and everything. And even though I've read that, and I understand that, and I, I see, obviously, the connective tissue to the movie... But despite reading that or having the knowledge of it, I still think especially the end is very extremely open to interpretation regardless of the book. Yeah, the me- the meaning of what the end, like what it means to you emotionally, what you think it's saying, that's all there. Like you can question that. When it comes to the overall plot, I think it's pretty straightforward. Yeah, okay. I... Once you once you get what it what the structure and, you know, basic foundation is. That that's yes. what I mean. Yes, I agree with that, yes. Yeah. So yeah, after, when I watched this as a teenager, and I, I got super into it, like I said, it was my favorite movie, I probably watched it ten times in, I don't know, like two years. I just kept watching it over and over again, trying to be like, oh, what's the meaning of this part? What's the meaning of this part? But then, after a while, it's like, oh, actually, I don't know if this is really a surrealist movie. And yeah, I'm still kind of in that place. Again, I don't know what the definition exactly is of surrealist or surrealist movie, but with my limited understanding of the term, I would still 100% call this a surrealist movie. But again, that's partially based on my ignorance. Yeah. Yeah, we, we've discussed it yeah, many times. I I don't know. <laughs> I feel like it is a, a, in itself a subjective term, surrealist film. I always take it as it's something that is looking through the lens of surreality. So it's not taking place as if it's a regular fiction that exists in a grounded real world. It's everything that you're seeing is just kind of a mask to tell you a different story. Okay. I think I'm going to start calling that orthodox surrealist. Um, <laughs> That's the most basic, the most basic template for. Because I, I, I wouldn't subscribe to that definition. Again, I don't really know about all this. Because, yeah, I would take a softened approach to the meaning of the term. I would too. That, like I said, that's just the most basic <laughs> for someone who's like, I don't understand what the term means. That's what I would say just as an introduction. It does get much more wavery around the edges, and that's just what surrealism is. It's all wavery around the edges. Huh. But what do you think about that stuff there, Isaac? Do you? What was your kind of readings when you when you first saw this in and saw it again? 
Well, first, when I first saw this, again, I thought it was a horror film because of how, like, quiet it was and like, the, the best kind of horror film, if you ask me, uh, <laughs> where it's the ideas uh, before any, like, jump scares. And when there was jump scares, it was, like, absolutely no music to shock you. Like, the moment when, you know, Hal is in control of the pod and he knocks um, whatever his face's name, like, out and or, like, disables his suit and kills him it was like terrifying to me but this read sorry this read this one uh when when eric said about how you know he wanted to make it very like european i was like caleb said that yeah caleb said that sorry yeah you said that sorry caleb um at the end i was like okay i think i sort of get the ending in a way uh especially kubrick's approach if you did say caleb he was making this like you know a lot more um uh, European base, like a European vision instead of like an American vision, um, makes me question what Nolan's like Interstellar. How like if that's more American than it is European? Anyway, um, yes, <laughs> I noticed with the with the fact, and this is before you said that, but with the additions of classical music, um, or at least Baroque music, excuse me, from like the you know, 17th century or 18th century, uh, I noticed. Oh, this is like the definition of I maybe not definition now. I, I get my terms mixed up. But this is like you both know about the romantic period of I think England or Europe itself. I'm talking about like in like in literature. Yeah, either lit, lit well, even like I don't know literature or just the era of like there's the romantic era and then there's like the Enlightenment era, and they're like two contrasting different schools of thought. Yeah, I don't know much about it, but I yeah continue I keep, keep going. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So I, yeah, okay. This is gonna be like very. I have to explain myself, but because <laughs> sure. uh, I, I fully have not, you know, researched this uh, completely. But what I know is that this is that this is like either romantic or enlightenment. I don't know which one it is, and huh. it's and it's, that's what it is. Uh, with how like slow paced it is, this is like something of. Uh, a sweet almost this is like a not a music this is not a music video i'll say that but he definitely i think kubrick structures this like a symphonic to, piece there we go thank you very much like a symphonic piece that you would go to uh a concert hall to listen to and you'd be amazed and so this is like visually on screen what you're seeing from the concert that's why i connected it to uh fantasia no i i totally see all that i absolutely agree like structurally yes yeah and more so than uh sci-fi i put this into or not sci-fi <laughs> more more so than surreal i would put this into experimental film and slightly more into experiential because yeah it is all about just the way it makes you feel watching this like you could read the book if you want to get the base story i think it came out like a month after this but sitting and experiencing this you could never get on the page it is stunning visually the music yeah it so many different types of emotions the music gives you. And then when you get to the the big moment at the end, kind of entering the monolith, that is such a... I mean, it, at times it can feel like a spiritual experience. It's so overwhelming and great, especially on the big screen with the, the, the full sound. That is... That's a crazy experience. And within the monolith itself or the matrix, whatever you want to call it, when he's inside uh, the room and he's like, you know, you, we see all these like beautiful statues and beautiful art... Uh, and he's just like each like through the cycles of his life until he goes into like, you know, he's on the bed and he's about to die. And then he becomes like the star child 
Uh, it's, and then the credits roll and the music's still going on for even like four minutes after the credits roll. By the way, Stuart Freeborn, that was the uh, makeup artist. For Thank the, you. Yes, sorry, that's, that's right. I know that in the credits. Um, so, <laughs> yeah, this really does feel like it's you would go to a concert and watch this. You're right. And I think you're also absolutely right or very right about romanticism or the the movement in Encyclopedia Britannica. <laughs> uh, it says, um, among the characteristic attributes of romanticism were the following, a deepened appreciation of the beauties of nature, a general exaltation of emotion over reason and of the senses mm. over intellect, a turning upon the self and a heightened examination of human personality and its moods and mental oh. potentialities. Oh, that is very interesting. Yeah. Well, thank you for that, Isaac. That's yeah, that adds something definitely. All right. Okay. Uh, he's never listening to this. Confused Matthew, if you're listening to this, I just figured out the film for you. Oh, oh boy. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> um, but just in terms of the yeah, kind of the visual aesthetic that we get in this movie. So of course we've been going through all these Kubrick films, and. I believe that this is his second feature in color. Because I think Spartacus was the first. It's been a while since we've done these. Forgive me. <laughs> yeah, I think you're right. But from moving up from his prior films, getting to this, it feels like a colossal leap. And we've been saying that through a lot of these 60s work. Yes. He's like, oh, his progression is just so huge. But this, this is not just an amazing progression of him as a filmmaker, but for sci-fi in the 60s to get to this, that is, it's stunning. And it's something to think that Star Wars and Alien, which came out nearly a decade later for Star Wars and then over a decade later for Alien, they really don't look that much better than this. Like, it is so, so cutting edge for that, that time that it stayed relevant 10 years later in terms of how great it looks. And especially um, considering not just the time gap between this and those movies you mentioned, but also that when this came out, um, most people... Like, because there wasn't much to see. Most people hadn't really seen, like, outer space in color um, before, hardly at all, um, to know what it even looks like from beyond the atmosphere. And then for this to, to pull off the imagery that it does to when in real life um, we eventually get much more, you know, high resolution images of what space looks like in color from beyond and how well it kind of lines up with reality without much to go on in the first place. If that makes <laughs> sense. Yep. Yeah. It's pretty, pretty crazy. And again, this, this 4k copy, although it, there's a couple little bits that it uh, makes me notice things I never noticed before, like the little bit of uh, fishing line on the, uh, or I guess monofilament on the pen when it's floating around. I can finally see that after never seeing it before until today. <laughs> Like, oh, that's where that is. Yeah, I can barely, I can barely perceive, like a little bit of glimmer or shine off the the clear wheel that the pen is also attached to. <laughs> I can barely notice it, but that's because I'm like really looking for it. Uh -huh. I'm, the the average person wouldn't notice. Yeah, and that's only to say that even with this this pristine, beautiful copy where all the blemishes should be readily uh, available to see. It's still so few that come through because it was just such an expertly done job. It's just crazy. <laughs> and again, I guess the precision of Kubrick. No, uh, no strings left seen except for that one little bit. But <laughs> yeah, and um, you can see the DNA of Star Wars so deeply into this. It's yeah, it, w it was really something when I first saw it. 
to be like, oh, wow, Lucas. Yeah, he definitely, I thought he was more of a maverick than I, than I realized seeing this film and how much DNA is right there. <laughs> DNA is certainly of Star Wars, certainly of Alien, as you mentioned, but then of just so many things mm-hmm. in general. So many, many, many things. I mean, to the point that obviously this movie has been referenced who knows how many times in other media, etc. You know, as recently and as obvious as the scene in the Barbie movie. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, which is a fun little reference. I, did, I didn't mind that. I'd forgotten about that, actually. I guess I didn't, haven't really thought about those movies. <laughs> I think I had quite a bit of chagrin, um, but not in the positive way. To the to this movie or no to Barbie oh, and me. and the inclusion of that very blunt reference. Oh really? I thought it was cute. I I don't think that. Yeah, no shrieking for me. But I wasn't against it. But it wasn't. I, I was like, okay. <laughs> I, I felt like it was low hanging fruit. But that's fine. That's just my opinion that no one cares about <laughs> as it pertains to the Barbie movie. Oh, but I did want to mention yeah with that that stellar opening, seeing the uh, the sun rising over the uh, the moon and Earth. I love how they parallel that shot a couple times in the movie. I think the first time is when we see that uh, it's right before they enter the monolith. You kind of see them all lining up in the monolith in the uh, the middle there. Um, and then, of course, at the end, when we see the uh, the star child kind of rising right next to the Earth like that, too. Absolutely. Kind of the next step in the uh, evolution. And, and speaking of references, I think this is why the Andor series notably referenced that, references that visual cue. Oh, yes. At least two key moments um, throughout the series. One being the opening, opening title sequence, of course. But then when you watch the uh, the final shot of season one, um, yep. they you know pretty much duplicate it. But it's not just to reference the visual, but I think it's to reference the metaphor of what this movie is about as, as it pertains to Andor as well. Yeah, like the emotional impact. And like being on the cusp of like entering a new era or change with the uh with the alignment of either jupiter's moons or the planets itself one i sorry i couldn't help but think of disney's hercules when the planets align the titans will be released but oh that is that is an apt thing to say but continue <laughs> no because i have more to say about that oh okay yeah but yeah i definitely was like hmm there's some symmetry going on between the uh, alignment symmetry as i said uh where everything is in a line at least from a certain point of view of course as if either the the monoliths themselves machines or the monoliths themselves as the precursor devices whatever you want to call it markers uh have are, are like have predetermination in a way or it's all free will i don't know but like are, are causing all these events to occur it's i don't know i was like hmm i wonder what if yeah. if there's any like bit, I, there is symbolism there? I just haven't figured yes, out there what is. the alignment is. Okay, now does it come from the book or does it come from this is your read? No, this just comes from no. This is me researching and going down a bunny hole. Oh wow! Okay, a rabbit hole. Let's go. I wish I had made like a um a, ch- a flow chart or something. <laughs> um, oh, good grief! Because I only made very brief notes on this, thinking it would all somehow fit in my head, or that I'd remember it all. But see, I went on a deep dive because I was curious about the name of the moon of Jupiter. Oh, yeah. They were going to. Europa? No, no, no. They're go- oh, was it Europa in the movie? 
Or am I thinking of 2010? I thought it was Europa, but I'm thinking of 2010. No. Yeah, that's 2010. I, I can't remember. It was, was uh, Giath. I don't remember now. It's um, and it, it's odd, by the way. 2010. I actually saw well before I saw 2001. But anyway, oh, interesting. So when I saw 2001, yeah, when I saw two, because I, I saw 2010 growing up because they were shown on free television, um, and I was much more familiar with that movie, and I always noticed like the callbacks to the 2001 movie in 2010 so for me watching 2001 was like a star wars fan watching the prequels like <laughs> for the first time to see oh so you know what's the backstory here anyway um it's a yapa iapetus yes i'm not sure how oh. to pronounce mm-hmm. it with the j if it's latin <laughs> right and so I, I you know anytime i see something like that in any film or series i'm interested in I go, hmm, I, I know it's going to uncover something if I discover the meaning of, of that reference. Um, and so I looked into it, and of course, um, most most of the celestial bodies in, in the solar system are named after Greek gods and titans. Mm-hmm. And so I went on a deep dive into who they all were and how they were related to each other. And Iapetus, in in the whole Greek mythology thing, is is sort of considered the the common ancestor of all humankind. Oh, interesting. Mm. And it lines up a lot of the Greek mythology lines up with like things in the Old Testament, um, and and there's historical reasons for that. But without getting into all that, it's also very similar <laughs> yeah. to um, Noah's son. Uh, I forget his name. Uh, I mean, he had multiple sons, but his particular son. No, it's like it's like Japetus or something, um, something like that. And even because those names are so similar, a lot of the Christian Christian belief and understanding of of that son has been associated with Iapetus, because in Christianity, um, that son is also considered like the common ancestor um, of mankind and 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 the different races. Um, and so I said, okay, that makes a lot of sense. So then I started looking into other things, um, like where they find the monolith on the moon. They mentioned it's in the, the Tycho crater. Um, and I looked that up and in Greek, um, Tycho means like fortunate or chance and, of course, I started just looking into the relationship of, um, like, Iapetus was one of the sons of um, the original two Greek deities, which was Uranus and Gaia. Um, and I was looking at all the different relationships of all the different Greek gods. And and Iapetus, um, of course, uh, he had his own children one of them being Prometheus, and that's that's obviously where Ridley Scott's brain went. Um, <laughs> he was coming up with Alien and then later Prometheus. And, of course, the meaning of Prometheus, um, you know, uh, metaphorically um, being the first one to discover fire. Um, and then when you mentioned Hercules, um, and how did you tie it into the um, the imagery of the planets? So I said uh, in the shot before Dave goes towards the monolith, we see the monolith float. float sorry, see the monolith floating 
uh, in space and either all of Jupiter's moons or all of the planets in Jupiter in like the foreground are in a straight line and the monolith kind of intersects in there as well and fits in there. And so when I saw that, I was like, oh, I remember the scene from Disney's Hercules where, uh, you know, Hades is waiting for the Titans to be released from their prison. And the fates <laughs> said that, you know, uh, you know, in some amount of time, the planets will align. And that's when uh, I guess the barrier for the Titans will be weakened. So you can like go in there and break it for them or break and release them. Yeah. So all that's, all that stuff you said from like the references from the Disney story that all ties into all of this, um, like thematically the Titans and everything. (laughs) Um, because the Titans were the original, uh, children of, of your, Uranus, Uranus Uranus. and Gaia of which Iapetus was one of the Titans. Um, and then one, another of Iapetus sons was Atlas and, I know everyone thinks of Atlas as the guy with the world on his shoulders, but that's sort of like a misinterpretation of like the original Greek and Roman understanding. Um, Cause the Greeks and Romans thought of Atlas as the, like the deity who controlled every objects like c- celestial place. So it was like the invisible binding of what made planets stay where they are and orbit and stars and suns and the moon and everything so atlas was like it's considered like that thing like we don't know what it is but it's the thing that keeps everything in place like in the in the universe um and i could go on and on because there's so much more interesting things about the story especially Epictetus's um brother cronus who was considered not the most evil but the most sinister of the Titan siblings who were born from Uranus and, and Gaia and, and, and Cronus obviously is connected to time, but Cronus is always thought of the thing that will defeat all things ultimately mm. um, by, you know, and, and Cronus is also associated with a, a Sith, a Scythe, um, like the Grim Reaper, um, because he's, he's considered like the thing that will eventually cut everything down eventually. Um, and just, if you just read about all this, cause I was just kind of taking a thumbnail tour of like all these different Greek gods and deities and their relationships and, and their offspring and then how they betray each other. If you read all that kind of stuff, you kind of see how that kind of DNA of the mythology, like governs so much of this story as a whole in this movie Um, And and you kind of see how all these things are all kind of related. Um, I'm talking about big things like, um, like the, like the Bible in general, or like um, uh, Homer's um, Iliad or Odyssey. But you kind of see how these big, massive scope tomes usually focus on, like in some kind of way, they're about the human condition be it a human's life from birth to death or humankind and like the evolution of the species and then like all this stuff about like the monoliths it, it's so interwoven with like um like the tree of knowledge in in the garden of eden and like again I, there's a greek version of this sort of tale of how everything was created and spawned 
and it's all interconnected and those names are very important i mean they're obviously names of real celestial things that exist in the solar system mm-hmm. but they play perfectly into the whole theme of the movie like all these grand tales are just sort of like different melodies playing on the same theme wow yeah no no definitely using all that kind of pre-baked history in there to advance the themes yeah and i think it is important that yeah they changed to jupiter in this film instead of saturn like in the book i forget who's saturn in the greek pantheon um saturn oh actually actually that's it i thank you I believe no. That's that's Cronus, isn't it? Or yes, exactly, exactly. I forgot because that's exactly why Saturn is Saturn. Uh, I mean, because that's like the more. Um, I think it's the more Romanized name uh, version of Cronos. Exactly because the reason Saturn was named Saturn was because throughout all classical times, um, Saturn was the farthest planet that humankind knew. You know, up until the invention of like the telescope or something. <laughs> so they mm-hmm. thought it was the farthest planet. So because of that, and because Kronos, as I said, is often associated with the end or end times or ending, that's why they named it Saturn, because it was considered like the last planet. And that's the same reason why Saturday is named after Saturn, is because Saturday classically has always been considered the end of the week. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, yeah. It, it, that's what I'm saying. When you like start reading about all these things, like in the, uh, in the Greek mythology... Like it just, you just feel it woven throughout this entire story, even starting with like um, the creation story in the Greek version. Um, but again, they're all very similar, like the creation story in the Christian um, or Hebrew or um, um, what do you call it? Abrahamic religion. Uh, I was going to say, um, what's the other word for Norman? Uh, Norse. Um, <laughs> like, like there's all, they all have the same elements and i didn't go on a deeper dive like into babylonian beliefs and egyptian but again they all got they all got combined because i think cronus he was when when rome took over egypt they kind of combined the concept of cronus with um the crocodile god in egypt but i can't remember his name so bad no one of those one of those guys but but still i'm just saying all these big themes continue to be the same big themes throughout all these different eras of humankind or human like higher thinking so there's the surface level of the movie itself like if you take the movie at face value it's like eh. but then if you as eric did um you know take the red pill or whichever one it is and you know take a deep dive all of a sudden you realize that there's way more to this whole movie than meets the eye yeah where where should we go next should we (laughs) Finally, take a look at the uh, the crew heading off to to Jupiter there with Dave and Frank and Hal. Sure. Yeah, I'll say for my many watches that I used to have in the past, this was the part that I struggled the most to be like, okay, I get what the overall message of the movie is. I think I get it at least at the time. But I'd be like, how the hell does this tangent in here fit? Like, what what is the what is it trying to say? I think I have some reading for it now, but. It was definitely the one that I had to, to struggle the most to figure out how this fit into it. Now, do you guys did you guys have a similar experience or just kind of take it for what it is? I always took it for what it was until much more recently, hmm. um, and then I started to tackle that issue or understanding that you just brought up. I mean, in very recent times, like maybe literally in the last year or two, and due to the research that I did for this conversation, I, I think 
I, it all it makes sense to me now. But I never I never really cared one way or the other before. Hmm. Uh, Isaac, could you repeat the question, please? <laughs> uh, for the overall kind of message in this this movie, the progression of the human race, kind of I guess that's the the central kind of core of it. I always kind of wondered how does this middle piece here fit into that? What is it trying to say exactly? I see. What part of the journey is it trying to illustrate? Well, good question. Yeah, the what's what on this part of the Odyssey, part two, I guess, or chapter two, or the middle act. However, he structured this middle act. Thank you. Um, I was thinking back to in in like Dawn of Man. Don't don't worry, I'm not going back there, but I'm like trying to bring stuff from there. I'd go back there for my reading. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, where we see that there is still. Maybe I'm wrong with this, but like there, I saw that you know proto man had differences with each other. We saw that they were in groups, like you know tribalism. They were uh, grouped together and says so it's like us versus them. But mm. even when they were attacked by the cheetah, for instance, uh, even after that, and they were hiding, they were still like arguing amongst themselves. I guess to, like shut up or like hey, be quiet, <laughs> uh, so the cheetah doesn't come and kill us. So I was like, okay, is there like, especially when we saw, you know, the, the idea, the use of weapons later on, discovery weapons, which I guess is a replacement for fire in this case. Fire will come later, but for now we have like weaponry or at least the ability to use tools or comprehension to use tools. But um, the us versus them, I mean, that's what we have of uh, like the, the, the crew of the discovery and with the HAL 9000 with him. Uh, and how how is programmed to see the mission to its very end and uh, how the, the two of the humans there are against uh, Floyd and, and Dave are against this or not Floyd but um, both of them are against you know how kind of delaying the mission and you know he has an error so he starts malfunctioning so I'm like is it an us versus them mentality there what's your maybe, maybe I haven't exactly gotten my thoughts uh, developed yeah. them like you two have so um, I find my might adapt and uh, might just you know echo what you guys say yeah I guess I'll lay mine out before Eric gives uh yeah whatever he's reading. yes I want to hear yours first so we see with the monoliths first interaction in in my reading they're giving an invitation okay let, let's teach you how to use technology and if you can advance this enough to be able to, you know, reach a level where you can come to our next stop point, then, then we'll give you the next key to the next big step. And part of that is, because as we see with the next big step, they no longer would need technology anymore. They've evolved beyond it. So this whole little middle section of them heading off to that third monolith, I take it as seeing what humanity's become, taking the technological kind of movement to its extreme. We see them... Frank and uh, Dave, they're kind of, uh, how would you put it? They're like in a, almost a malaise with this technological world. They're completely reliant on the machine. They seem almost disinterested with even reactions between each other. And we see Frank gets like a, a birthday call from his parents. And he seems pretty disinterested in that too. It's almost like this technology is taking something from them. And so getting Hal's point of view... He's almost got the vitality that they're missing. Like he's desperate for his own chance at life, and he's worried about like this. This mission uh, it seems a little seems a little bit off. Like it seems like they're not quite uh, giving us the full facts here. And once Dave's like, "Hey, like, are you kind of are, are you questioning the mission here? Like, what what's going on?" That's the first time we see him have his his fault. 
but then his arrogance he can't he can't ever admit that he's wrong and so which one who can't admit they're wrong uh how okay and so in his way his humanity drives him to uh try to kill these humans and then or i guess does kill most of them and so i take this this part of it as being the technology is a great tool but if you let it take over you then that's a danger in itself and that's going to hold you back from your next evolution that that's what i take this bit as all of that to say <laughs> maybe a long-winded way to get to that but <laughs> no that was good uh, but how about yours eric <laughs> so so my more much more recent thoughts on this in particular um are kind of i mean i think this is all tied together i mean what isaac said what you said and the, what i think and i'm about to say is kind of, i think they're all relatable and related and connected and just just my version is a little bit more nuanced but along yeah. similar lines um because i think what's happening is all the business with hal and 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 this whole act is again reminding us of the theme that what comes along with enlightenment um and, and like a broadening of your thinking and, and discovery and innovation um there's also a heightened ability to inadvertently um end yourself harm yourself kill yourself um not necessarily intentionally but unintentionally it, it raises that issue and so like with the primitives or the the hominids um with discovery of tools um while that in the long run that could make life better and easier um on the whole it's also going to introduce a lot more threat and death for people kind um and i think that's the same message with the more advanced technology um that by going so far with the technology like with hal and i i don't and practically inventing like a, a sentient ai um while that's an amazing accomplishment and it will be one day when it happens um you're also creating a new possibility of unintentionally getting yourself killed as a human um because again with just with greater knowledge and discovery comes greater risk of death and harm um and i think that that's kind of the broad messaging if i can reference the book for a second um i think in the book this was more on display with the whole situation of of the nuclear weapons um and that whole subplot in in the story and i think in the film this i mean they obviously don't mention that stuff in the film so i think this sort of replaces that theme for this part of the story um more the focus is on how instead of the whole um because i think in in the in the novel the whole thing about the nuclear arms also plays the same function as what i'm talking about oh i completely forgot about that part of the book yeah that's right mm. <laughs> and it's funny how that's woven into the theme of star trek the motion picture but anyway <laughs> um and what's interesting too because i got all because before i started having this thought actually earlier today 
because everything I'm saying, I mostly just thought earlier today, because I had all that stuff about the Greek mythology in my head before I started thinking about this, a very common theme in those myths and, and in, in all the major religions of this planet, um, there are so many stories about, whether you think of it literally or figuratively, of a parent killing a child or a child killing a parent. There's so many um, important instances of that in all like earth mythology. And I also saw that parallel here too, because um, Hal is essentially like um, a life form, you know, this is mostly metaphoric, but like a life form that, that humans have created. Uh, metaphorically the son of humankind and so these types of clashes are to be expected um, with these kind of themes with one attempting to kill the other um, and then as you brought up this subject in this discussion right now I was thinking also you could and I'm curious what happens in, in the third novel of, of the series um, which is like 2061 or whatever it is. I have no idea what happens in that. <laughs> but but just thinking about this movie, and if I was to extend it further in my head, whoever the civilization was or these aliens that sent these messages or left these, um, these clues, or however you put it, Caleb, um, like these keys, they potentially, you know, set the human race on its trajectory. So in that metaphor... Or not metaphor, but from that point of view, how this to the humans as the humans are to this unknown alien species. So who knows in the future, this could end up biting the aliens in the ass at some point when humans try to kill them. You know what I'm saying? I mean, because like Isaac had said, this whole thing plays like how George Lucas um, describes the Star Wars saga as like a symphony that keeps playing over and over again. So if we extend it further beyond the end of the movie, potentially the humans could become a um, antagonist for the aliens in some kind of way, metaphorically. Yeah. That's when it becomes interesting when you wonder what the ending of this movie does mean separated from whatever happens in the, the books later. Is it like we can teach you how to create your own God? <laughs> Cause he is like a God being floating up there. That's like God baby. Like what is he What's he meant to do or what's it meant to impart on the humans that they could become this? That part, yeah, it's definitely open to interpretation. Yeah, because... And I really don't have one. <laughs> yeah, I think one obvious read... I mean, there's there's more than one, but one obvious read is that, again, it's the next echelon, the next stage of humankind. You know, just like the apes were or the, the um, hominids are compared to modern humans. This is mm -hmm. the next level of evolution. Um and then, of course, it being like a baby, meaning it's the beginning of the next age, the next era. Mm -hmm. um, and again, I mean, do you guys see the metaphor of how the aliens kind of steered humankind to being what it is? And then the humans did that to the machine, how like how it could just keep going? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. In no. both directions, forward and backward. Yeah, And of course, uh, we've talked about Prometheus, but. That's like the core of that movie in many ways is that kind of idea there. And I just realized something about my metaphor before uh, with when I got, I was incorrect because uh, I said, there's no fire. It's like, wait a minute, you idiot. Not the, 
the the story of Prometheus granting humans fire for the first time that could also be metaphorical. Literally, the the uh, monolith gave fire, i.e., tools like the the fire itself. Yeah, yes, of course. To the hominids, I'm like, oh, you idiot! I didn't think of that till now. Yes, certainly. That's why I always loved that the image of them throwing that bone, the first tool, and then just like snap cut to the evolution of it. This is what it's become. Just that one spark of a tool grew all to this. Yeah, pretty cool stuff. From fire down in an oxygen-rich atmosphere to uh, fuel within a machine out in the vacuum of space. Yeah, and and that scene you just mentioned, Caleb, the one with the bone transition, um, that was like the first epiphany I had with this movie when, I don't know, I was watching it like the fourth time or the fifth time. Because I always took it as a straightforward movie um, when I first saw it. Mm. Um, but that bone scene, when I saw it the fourth or fifth time, that's the first time the light bulb went off in my head, uh, ironically. Um, oh, there's more going on in this movie <laughs> below the surface. Because that's when I had my first um, existential thought on the movie was when I saw that scene Um on rewatch and I said, Oh, so they're saying just like the hominids are the beginning of their new change. Um, like, like you make it seem like, well, it's the end of their hominid era, but the beginning of their new, like innovational technological era. But even though it's 2001, which of course is in the future of when the movie came out and we go, wow, look what a, humans have accomplished in the future but even with all those um innovations um in technology etc they are still taking the first step Mm -hmm. and so yeah that was my first light bulb moment with this movie was that and it all just from that bone scene yeah and i think i mentioned on some other podcasts that back when i used to watch this and we get to that that image of the star child hovering over earth kind of looking at that what what could be? What What's the future going to look like moving to this new step? Yeah, I used to be in such awe during that moment. It used to bring me to tears a lot. That little finale there. Not so much these days. Maybe I've just seen it, I don't know, so many times now. But I honestly was... Once he goes into what looks like the portal or whatever, mm-hmm. everything after that in the movie, I pretty much had been perplexed for years. Like I had almost zero thoughts about it. I mean, not zero thoughts, zero conclusions that I didn't have the foggiest uh, with hardly any of that stuff until maybe like in the last four or five years. Yeah. And of course me watching it, thinking of it as a surrealist film coming in, that's the part where I really sat up in my analytical brain. I started firing in all cylinders. Like, okay, what's, I got to study this here. So (laughs) I was always very much trying to see, and it's, I, I'll say it's still, every time I watch it, I'm so stunned. Like, how, how did they realize this? How did they do it? Wait, what? Like, I, I still don't know with, with the early effects. Do you mean story-wise or visually? Visually. I can't, I can't tell you exactly, but I just know that in the last couple of years, I've seen videos about, like, the making of. Um, and all I can say is really complicated optical effects. I mean, that's the best way I can describe it. I mean, it's obviously more involved than that, but um, just just the fascinating practical effects that that it, I mean, there was so much that is underappreciated 
from this time. Well, actually, even prior to this time, but especially at this time, um, until CGI became a thing. Like, there's there's so many, yeah, um, amazing, incredible. Like, how did they do that optical effects out there? Um, that I and some that I didn't even think about. Um, if anyone wanted to take an alternate deep dive, um, there was a very famous HBO. Um, opening they used to play in the early to mid 80s um before they would start a new feature presentation on the channel and it was iconic everyone like gen x and older like knows that iconic sequence that like roll in um title sequence for hbo um and it, it was done like hbo put so much into the production of this little 60 second opener um um mimicking techniques that like spielberg and lucas made popular um (laughs) and if you watch the sequence you go oh yeah that's pretty cool but then when you watch the making you have no idea how much went into it and there's this part that happens at the end where like the letters of hbo do this weird color thing which reminds me of the the tunnel sequence in this Mm -hmm. and and the making of the hbo one is is just as mind-blowing um, how much time went into like, because you know everything had to, the effects had to all be physically produced frame by frame, you know, and it was just completely out of this world. You can find that on YouTube on the HBO thing, and it, it's it's mind blowing. Yeah, in this itself, I I still very much find mind blowing, especially like the first two minutes when we're just kind of plowing forward into all these these lights and all these different colors. That stuff, I I can't even begin to imagine how they did that, but it looks so so amazing yeah not just that sequence but i mean most of the effects in this movie um many of those gen zers i've watched on youtube um with with many of the effects in general throughout the movie so many of them say like how in the world did cgi look so good back then oh and, no and, and, and they say why does the cgi look better script than like the marvel scripts no they're on the script they, they're, they're told that yeah. it's just paid no no no. they're reading a script they are not they are not they are not what i hate even worse is when some people a lot of people there's like a growing movement not just of the gen zers but even older people who instead of saying cgi they say graphics yeah i, I yeah. hate that but i've heard that too like why are the graphics so good in this movie talking about 2001 why are the graphics so good what <laughs> specify oh yeah i really hope that movement doesn't gather more steam but it seems to be growing it's going to. i hate it it's, I hate it's it. going to oh it's it's always been around yeah. it sounds so barbaric oh it's always been around but i it's it's growing it is growing <laughs> i can't believe it's growing oh no I don't like it. It sounds so barbaric to me. Uh, but I imagine with this movie that there was a lot of people who could probably be like, okay, I'm, you know, I love this first eight kind of scene, but then I get kind of bored in the middle and then get to this and then be like, okay, I don't even know what to think. And I don't even want to think. I don't care. This this was just crazy. Hold on. You think people get bored, bored by the middle? Oh, I, I would think so. Because people always say it's boring. Maybe, maybe I don't know what they're... I just assume that they're talking about the whole thing. I I think the second half of the middle, the second half of the second act, I think that's generally the most exciting part of the movie. Like, generally across, like, I'm trying to extrapolate, you know. Um, I think generally people find that the most engaging part of the movie. 
Okay. I think mm. it's where a lot of the iconography comes from. Because, like, sure, there's the beginning part. Nobody, like, references... When, when it comes to references, like, in Act 2, uh, in the beginning when we're, like, going to the moon, we go to, the like, the space station... Nobody mm -hmm. references that, but as soon as they're on the Discovery, they start reference like, you know, open the pod bay doors, how I can't do that, Dave, or I'm sorry, Dave, I can't do that. Um, yeah, like, I guess all that fair. all that stuff is referenced. Um, whereas nobody references the first part. They and they re reference the end as well. They reference um, uh, the, the the meeting with the monolith. Um, but that's it. That's it. Nobody <laughs> the first half of uh, act 2 nobody references. Yeah, maybe I'm just trying to yeah, extrapolate. I've actually never met anyone who's seen this until me and Isaac watched it together. So I Oh wow. I was just taking from okay, I guess that's what people think. I don't know. That <laughs> is actually strange if like I'm pretty sure people in our area probably have seen. I mean, there are people at the theater, if I recall. Oh yes, yes, of course those but I didn't meet those people. <laughs> that's that's true. But but among my, my friend group, no one had ever seen it. And I was always this is a number of movies that I that I always loved that I was nervous to show my friends. This was absolutely one of them. I was like, I don't know what the hell they're, they're going to think about this. I don't know if I should bother trying to make them watch it. Or For some reason, I've always found it a little bit easier. Not that I've done it many times, but I have done it. I've always found it a little bit easier to show an unassuming audience this versus Clockwork Orange. Oh, I can understand why. Yeah, the violence in that. Well, yeah. it's not only that. I mean, it's it's like many things about that movie. Um, I, I find that people scratch their head even more or um, the uninitiated with that than versus this. Cause this, I, I still think that even if it's not your thing, even science fiction in general, I think that just the visuals alone will get people into some degree, even if they don't love the movie, I think the visuals will get them in, not just the special effects, but the um, cinematography and filming style and the lenses and everything. Yeah, it could be, especially with this most recent 4K edition. It really does look, if it wasn't for the people and the style of their clothes and stuff, you would think it was a much more modern movie than it is. It, it's so crisp looking, it, it's just crazy how great it, it's, it's translated. I think it's still the best looking analog era film, uh, meaning pre-CGI, uh, that you can currently get on 4K uh, from any decade prior to CGI. I, I don't I still think it's it's the best of the best. Yeah, and I'm actually watching my old Blu-ray uh, right now as we're discussing this. And I before I thought it was a great Blu-ray, but now watching it, I've noticed that there was a number of errors in there. Just scenes that seemed like they weren't color-corrected right, and yeah, definitely much, much lower sharpness. I think the ratio is different on the Blu-ray, the original Blu-ray and DVD. Yep, um, it looks different, absolutely. And then the biggest change, or noticeable difference aside from clarity with the 4k is is of course the hdr grading which is immensely different than the previous releases yeah so again highly i mean i'm sure everyone who's into uh physical media knows that this is definitely one of the ones to pick up but highly recommend either way yeah there's, there's no question about that <laughs> um but yeah where else to go um i guess i could say I've, I've always loved the performance of whoever was doing how and especially his little like his last moments Isaac, before we start recording, was singing that little song that he sings and him being like, I'm scared and I can feel it. You know, I'm, I'm losing, lose my mind. That stuff I always just found really chilling and really sad. I always had a, few, a real sympathy for, for Hal. Yes. Um, 
that whole sequence, I mean, the lead up to it and that the final moments of Hal, um, like Isaac was saying earlier, it is terrifying. Um, even yeah. when I was younger, even when I'm older, everything about it, visually, sonically, like uh, pacing-wise, everything about it is like it, it takes like filmmaking to another level of feeling and suspense and, and thriller. Um, it is all those things. I have always been fascinated by the song. <laughs> um, let me see if I can do this right now in real time. I wasn't planning to do this, but I do this in real life periodically myself. Um, Alexa, sing Daisy Bell. <laughs> How ironic. We're asking a doll for pit six. Exactly. That's, yeah. We're asking an artificial intelligence to do this. Alexa, volume 10. Daisy, oh, Daisy, give me your answer. What? Do Alexa, volume please. seven. <laughs> Oops. Had to. I have crazy. <laughs> all for the love of you. It won't be a stylish marriage. I can't afford a carriage. <laughs> It's trying. Absolute irony of us right now. Just like, huh? Wow, we can do that in 2023, the year of the Lord. Like, Um, so much irony here. Holy crap. I know. When when I first got my own Alexa device, it is one of the first things I did. And I do it like once a month just for kids. (laughs) We're all pucked. And again, it's notable, not just for the movie, but um, as some may not know, it was the very first song ever sung by a computer um, in 1961. And I encourage people to listen to that too on YouTube um, because Hal very much sounds like the actual... Oh, and uh, if it wasn't apparent to anybody, Hal is not not voiced by an actual computer. (laughs) Oh, and I love how his performance changes after he finally takes the step to kill Frank and those three scientists. Like, when we finally hear him again, and he sounds, like, kind of, I don't know, like, he's, like, like sleepy and a little bit, I don't know, just off. That's chilling. That's really scary. What are you talking about, Dave? Everything's fine. Like, something like that. That's... Whew, yeah. okay, just so much irony here, and, like... <sighs> This movie has definitely like made me. If it wasn't for Terminator and this, then it's like my not full on apprehension, but my at least wariness of going full on with AI, but at least still considering it as a. Well, this thanks to Astro Boy as well. Uh, both sides have even out sort of. So it's like okay, robots will one day become uh, a self conscious entity, and will you know there will be robot rights one day. So I'm wary of like, okay, they are their own, you know, species, but let's treat them as that. <laughs> Did you go see the creator yet, by the way? Just uh, not yet. No, not yet. no. <laughs> um, but the thing is, I mean, yeah, like you just said, Isaac, let's, let's, let's treat them nice. But um, I hope they treat us nice from the outset as well. Well, that's the other thing <laughs> of like, you know, I, I'm, I'm extending the old branch, but they would also have to do the exact same thing of like, let's extend the olive branch and work together and not kill each other 
because humans are doing that to each other anyways, but probably not. It's the uh, pessimistic outcome that's going to occur. Anyways, um, the song, Eric, please. No, no, but also the other issue with this conceptually, uh, again, from my Greek reading, and, and the thing I mentioned earlier about um, the peril of enlightenment is like with Kronos, he was told a prophecy that um, that one day uh, one of his sons would, would kill him. That would be his, his downfall. And because he knew that prophecy, um, he became incredibly, uh, uh, what's the word, um, paranoid. And so every time his wife gave birth, um, he ate every single child. Um, uh, and the, the last one, um, the one who ultimately fell him, uh, who I think was, I, I, the one I was talking about earlier, Iapetus, I think it was him. Uh, the reason it all went down was because, um, the wife concealed the baby as soon as it was born. And when, um, uh, Kronos, he said, um, you know, give me the baby because I'm going to eat it, you know, obviously, because that's what I do. And so she, what she did was she took a stone and wrapped it uh, in the swaddle and she gave him a stone and, and he ate that thinking it was his son. And then eventually Ipetus, he didn't kill him, but he he ended the reign of his father and, and basically the end of him. Um, and when Kronos died, all his other children came out of his mouth. Um, and again, this is all like a metaphor for the um, the beginning of humankind and all the different races. But uh, but my point of saying all this is that it's, again, the theme of um, how you can undo yourself, you know? And then, it, so it's kind of scary, too, because thinking about this science fiction in real life and, and the potential of technology unintentionally killing us, like, there's now I have a fear of a paradox as well, because... Um, you never know if the preoccupation on it will also lead to your own unintentional downfall. Yeah, but I'm curious if you guys saw some of the reading that I was having. And I don't know, maybe it's ill-founded because the other humans that we see on the uh, the moon station, they seem more like they're more human-like. There's something about Dave and Frank, especially when it's just the two of them on the ship. Like when we get that great little video kind of uh, setting up the exposition for this this next part of the plot when they're being interviewed about uh, Hal and about being on the ship, they seem more lifelike. When it's just the two of them, they have such a, a dull, like, lifeless energy to them. It seems like Hal is more human than they are to me. Like, yeah, I was, that's one of the reasons I would fixate on this so much. Like, what, what is this particular segment trying to say? I do see the contrast in what you're talking about, like, how they're a little different on camera, so to speak, than when it's just the two of them. However, it's, it's I don't know if I can go all the way, because while there is a difference there, I still feel like overall, even the humans on the moon or the station, um, everything plays so flat that it just, it just, that's the way people are in this. But it is true, though, that does create more of a um, dissonance with the way Hal comes off um, because the humans are playing so flat. So I, de I definitely sense that contrast too but i think it's probably a combination of both that um that kubrick is going for that flat acting style 
but simultaneously it helps artistically because of that contrast with Hal at the same time. So I think it's a bit of a two for one. Yeah, that's fair. And especially knowing some of his work going forward, in particular Barry Lyndon. Yes, exactly. <laughs> very similar acting style. I was thinking about that the whole time. <laughs> or yeah. in the um, the not crazy moments of The Shining is also... Oh. Like the, the regular conversations are usually pretty flat in that movie as well. Oof. Yeah, we'll get to that. Oh, and actually, just speaking of Shining, there's some connection here with, uh, I guess, one of the other performers that feels a little bit more lifelike, probably because she wasn't really an actor and was probably just catering to her dad's uh, prodding her with a, a stick to perform on camera. We get uh, the first appearance of Vivian Kubrick in this, playing the little kid on the, the TV screen. She'll go on to appear in all of the other Kubrick films after this, except for uh, A Clockwork Orange. She'll cameo and occasionally work behind the scenes. And in particular, The Shining, she was uh, filming a, an on-set documentary at the time, Making Of. So we'll definitely be, dis be discussing that when we get to that movie. One thought or thing I've always had that's actually used to always kind of bother me in the whole movie was that FaceTime call with his daughter. Yep. <laughs> and in particular, the reason it bothered me, it's such a inane thing, but what bothered me is, you know, they're basically having a FaceTime conversation and his daughter's there, you know, talking about, was it her birthday? Yeah. And what always bothered me, and this bothers me like in other shows when it would happen, these usually in older television shows, that, that the, um, the camera on the little girl's end is like tracking her. <laughs> Um, and you notice this like in movies whenever they like, oh, let's view the security footage. Uh -huh. And then you're like, what the heck? Why is it zooming and panning? Like, what 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 security camera is this that's autonomously doing that? That used to always bother me about that scene. Like, I always thought if, there, if I could change one thing in this movie, I would lock the camera off and make it <laughs> static um, uh -huh. and let her move out of frame or whatever. So this has bothered me forever with the movie. But... Very recently, like this week, I guess I have a little bit more nuanced thought about it because uh, unfortunately I get I find myself stuck on TikTok every now and then. And I don't know if you guys are familiar with the TikTok shop and all that stuff. Nope. Beg your pardon? <laughs> there's this there's this thing that's gotten really big in the last six months or so, which is like a side feature of TikTok, which is um, people can have like... Um, shop channels or accounts and what it has caused is it has caused like this huge it's not really a black market but it's similar to a black market system where it's it, it's heavily coming from asian countries um like china malaysia um indonesia where they have a lot of accounts set up where they're sort of doing like like the home shopping network type style um and there's and there there's always like a new hot um um let's say unlicensed product being put out there and and the hot item of the well there's a few but there's one of the hot items of the recent week i've noticed that everyone's selling out of asia via tiktok is um phone mounts that automatically track you wherever you go like so if you're if you're vlogging or TikToking, the camera will automatically follow you so i've been inundated 
with people selling these devices over the last week. <laughs> so now I'm like, okay, I guess now it is perfectly plausible that um, the little girl's home camera just has a simple tracker feature built into it. So it's not that crazy. And so I guess it's because our modern technology has caught up more with the movie. <laughs> um, now it's more believable. But when I used to watch this movie 5, 10, 15 years ago, I would just be like, what is this? What is this madness? But now it all makes sense. Well, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> I'm sorry. That was such a long way around to get yeah. to that. I always had a problem with that scene just because I found her acting stood out compared to everyone else in the movie. And it wasn't one where I felt like it was intentional. I was just like, oh, they just couldn't get this kid to act. But now I now I just find it kind of charming. I don't know. Maybe I have to stick up my butt. Yeah, no, no, the act, yeah, the acting and then the contrasting that that never bothered me um, <laughs> in the movie. That's fair. But yeah, I just figured I should mention her since this is a Kubrick series, and yeah, she will go on to uh, play somewhat of a role. And I was actually surprised I didn't know this. I I knew that she appeared in these, but I didn't realize that she actually did the score for uh, Full Metal Jacket. So that's interesting. No, I don't think I knew that. Far out. Yeah. And she produced an unused score for uh, Eyes Wide Shut. I don't know if they cut her out at the end after her dad died. Or maybe like, oh, your score sucks. We're going to bring in someone else. But she's very curious to do the research and find out what happened there <laughs> eventually. Well, that's a halfway decent segue into another topic on, on this movie, um, which is, of course, um, like the score, which, of course, is the existing um, pieces of classical music, was... If I if if I understand correctly, was originally intended to be like a um, what do you call it, like a working score? I can't remember what the proper term yeah, is. Temp score. Temp score. Sorry. You know, just to fill in um, until they ultimately came up with the official score. But of course, you know, I guess you know, Kubrick liked the temp score so much that's basically what they went with. But of course, there's that alternate story about how supposedly he was trying to court Pink Floyd. Um, oh, yeah. to produce the score of the movie. And supposedly that's why we have the name Floyd um, included in the in the character names. Nah. You don't think so? No, I don't think so. I don't think that's true. I have no <laughs> idea. But I've always heard that. So maybe it's an urban legend. I haven't verified that or anything. I've just always yeah, heard Yeah, knowing that. Kubrick, I don't think that that's what he would, would do. <laughs> it doesn't seem to fit with anything else he's done. Uh, but there's that other thing in Clockwork Orange we'll get to when we talk about that movie. <laughs> Sure. But anyway, um, but then this also ties into, I've, I've already brought up with you guys, but I highly encourage people who have never done it before um, to do the Echoes 2001 uh, thing. Um, if you if you don't want to be bothered with actually doing it yourself, you can find it already done for you on YouTube, and, and that works um, with grainy resolution for the visuals. Um but for some reason, I think it's so much more impressive when you do it yourself. Because um, I did it myself, um, like the second or third time I watched this movie. Um, uh, you just take the song Echoes um, from the Echoes album by Pink Floyd. Uh, and there's two different versions. There's like a 13-minute version and like a 20-something minute version. You take the longer version and you cue it up on your music device <laughs> and right when they put on like the third act like title card um, where it says jupiter or whatever mm -hmm. 
right when that comes on, you just hit play on the song and you just let it play. And you just listen to the audio of the Pink Floyd song and just watch the movie. Oh, yeah, I heard about this. Yes, and and the very first time I did it, you know, I didn't know what to expect. I had heard about it, but I didn't know what to expect when I did it. And not only is it impressive how it kind of lines up with all the sequences um, in Act 3, but when the song, because it has like a slow ending where the song finally slows down and, you know, it has like a prolonged ending, and it literally ends right when the end credits start. Wow, that's weird. And it's <laughs> it's the craziest thing in the world. Because again, this was not intended, but the song plays for a sound as a soundtrack, um, as like a silent movie soundtrack for the entire third act, and it literally starts and ends exactly where it should. Huh. So that's very strange. Hmm. Um, like I said, you can watch on YouTube, but when you actually do it yourself, it feels like something magical is happening or supernatural. Because as the as we go through the different scenes of the third act, you know, like the um, first just seeing space, then going down the tunnel, then seeing the planet's surface, and then ultimately the stuff in the apartment or whatever you want to call it, and then of course um, the space baby. It it like it's like the song. It again, it's like a silent movie score. It's like they they change up the song when it gets to all the the key scene changes. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. Yeah, maybe I'll do it one day. That does sound like something I should probably do. <laughs> you, Everyone should who has never experienced it. You will be impressed. And Inside Baseball, um, when I'm numerous times when I've been getting to know or courting uh, someone, um, like usually when, like if I'd invite someone like that over like for the first time to my place, I'd be like, oh, by the way, I just want to show you something. And I have done that multiple times and just played that um, the final act of 2001 along with Pink Floyd. Yeah, it's been successful or look over like, okay, uh, it's time to get going. Uh... Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Why would I continue to do it? <laughs> <laughs> um, but just a couple more notes just based on uh, the Kubrick retrospective in, in itself. So, of course, this movie following up Dr. Strangelove in itself is such a a contrast and there's next to no humor in this but there was one little kind of ride joke no dialogue it's just a, a visual gag that i always loved and it's the kind of zoom out seeing the uh, the zero gravity toilet and you just see him studying it very intently reading all the uh, very long list of yes. steps i always thought that was a great little small gag in a movie with no humor so i always appreciate that yeah, you're so right about that. I forget, is there any other humorous moments, or is that the only one? I think that's pretty much it. Isaac, was, did any stand out for you? Unless it's like visual stuff that I just found humorous that nobody else did. Um, I don't know if the, the video conference calls are funny. If, like, say, the interview is funny with the BBC reporter, I, or if the banter with between the uh, Russians on the space station is funny at all to people, I, I have no idea. I didn't find anything humorous. Oh, the ones we can't understand. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> could be, could be a hidden joke in there. Um, but another note I wanted to point out is I think I, I maybe Eric, maybe you remember better, 
but I believe this is the first movie that he's done not based on a book since uh, Killer's Kiss, I think. Maybe the kill. No, I think the killing may have been based on a book too. I don't. I don't know, to be honest. And I believe this is his last as well. I'm pretty sure everything after this is all based on uh, previously written material. So, so I thought that was an interesting note as well. So you're so this is like his one and only, not based upon previously existing. Well, material. well, besides fear, we're not counting fear and desire. Yeah, and Killer's Kiss. Those two were yeah Kubrick's originals. Okay. Okay. And then this one was a collaboration. Yeah. So, yeah, I just figured I'd mention that since. Sure. Yeah, that is an interesting note for him. If we're if we're mentioning random things, I've always found I don't know how you pronounce the name of this animal at the beginning of the movie. Tapir. Oh yeah yeah. Okay, tapir. That's how I that's how I always say it, but I don't know how you say it. Um, I've never I've only read it, never heard. Far it. Cry Three, baby. Anyway. Okay. <laughs> um, I never really thought much about them when I first saw the movie, but that animal jumped out at me metaphorically when I when I first saw apocalypto because we see some at the beginning of that movie as well mm-hmm. and when i saw apocalypto i was like what the heck like i've seen those things like in books but that's like a real animal um i mean that's the thought i had back then <laughs> and ever since apocalypto i i'm just generally fascinated by that animal um because it seems to hardly ever come up and most people seem to be very unfamiliar with it that it even exists uh-huh. Um, and I just think it's incredible. And I actually um, got to see some um, when I went to um, Big Bend, which is a, a humongous national park in, in Texas. Um, and, and it's kind of like a desert setting. Uh, and I was there just hanging out by a campsite location where there was nobody around, just us. Um, and when the sun started going down, all, all these tapirs just started coming out of everywhere and were just mulling around looking for things to nibble on. And I think it was so cool. That does that sound I got awesome. To, I got to see them like with my own eyes, like right there. And I was like, that's the apocalypto thing. <laughs> um, so I don't know. I just have some weird fascination with that animal species in general. Do you want to tell them, Caleb, or do you want me to tell them? Oh, I don't know where you're going with this. Go ahead. About the change from the book. Not that it matters at this point. Oh, which change? Uh, they were, instead of tapirs, they were going to kill Pumbaa. The uh, hominids. Oh, that's less interesting to me. Yeah, I don't remember that detail from the book. They were apparently yeah. going to kill warthogs instead of tapirs. And uh, also, apparently tapirs don't exist in uh, on the continent of, of Africa. <laughs> that may be so, but I'm sure they had some ancestor or something that looked like um, looked like them on the continent of Africa at some point supposedly it's supposed to be well i think this is from the book or maybe they said in the movie like four million years ago or so there was never a date given as far as yeah they they just say the dawn of man dawn of man so oh right that's right right i guess that's from the book i guess it's four million years ago supposedly yeah and even the they have like a a point of view character man ape it's like i think his name's stargazer or something what the flip yeah and he yeah yeah he had like a star killer kind of name to me. Um, yeah, and the reason they fixate him is because he's one that already has a touch of smartness to him, and so that's kind of why the monolith calls to him in particular. I'm assuming he's the first one to like touch it because he's the one that keeps like you know as as if like you know the monolith is hot. He keeps putting his he, like he's about to get calls and he's like nope. And then he goes again nope. 
And then he keeps, and then he like is just fascinated by it. So it's like, yeah, and he's the one that uh, I assume is the leader and the one that like gets the bone first. Yeah, which by the way, I love that performance of whoever's doing the ape. I thought that was great. Oh, all their movements, I think, is all pretty well done. Very much so. That one in particular. Yeah, it's kind of like what's his name? Um, I can't remember of uh... circus. No, no, the the enlightened ape in in the Planet of the Apes series is it Julius? Um, Caesar. Caesar? Yeah, sorry. Well, Julius Caesar, there you go. Yes, exactly. Um, but yeah, because I definitely also had that movie just in the in the back of my mind. Um, well, the original um, as I was watching this again today. Yeah, and I remember it was for years. It wasn't until only a few years ago that I realized it wasn't the same guy. But I always thought that they had like uh, headhunted the guy who did this to create the masks for Planet of the Apes, the original. But no. Stuart Freeborn. Yeah, no, they didn't get him. <laughs> uh, it was Moonwatcher in the in the novel. Moonwatcher. There you go. That makes sense. Yeah, and, and honestly, it works. It works. You know, maybe you wouldn't think it would, but that segment's pretty good in the book too. Overall, I, I'll, I'll again, I'll I think I recommended it at the start of this. I would say definitely if you're gonna experience either of these for the first time, go with the movie first. Oh yeah. But yeah, it's a pretty it's a pretty good book. Yes, I, I, I strongly um, agree with that, that you should um, experience the movie first, because I think I brought this up before. I don't know if it was with Caleb or not, but in podcasts that, you know, in, in my era, in the Gen X era, um, when I was younger, because uh, this is the way it always was. I mean, even before I was born, um, novel tie-ins for big movies was a very standard practice to mm-hmm. help promote um, new films, especially big films. And so as a kid, there's many movies that I read the novelization because the novelizations would usually come out at least two months prior to like mm-hmm. um, movies releasing. So there's a number of movies that where I read the novel, um, love the novel, so excited. And then you have that thing that happens like with um, adaptations where you have all these expectations in your head and then you see the actual movie and you go, wait a second, why is that different? And why did they leave out that other part? So I used to unintentionally screw myself over a lot when I was younger by, by doing that. Yeah, this is this is kind of a rare case in movies. I never really see this, where the book came out after the movie, but it's not really a novelization because they both were writing at the same time. It was almost like they were co-writers just writing in different formats. And then, yeah, it was just the one stipulation that the book had to come out after the movie, even though it was finished before the movie was. Well, yeah. Yeah, the release, that's interesting and unique. But the process yeah. was pretty standard. Um, I mean, where we're both would be created simultaneously um, and like co-written but independently at the same time. I'm talking about other movies in general. Yeah, but... So a lot of times... Go ahead. Yeah, the I think the only difference there is usually the novelizations were not actively part of the producing the main story they're kind of like okay we're getting the scripts let's quickly try to write this out and keep up with the writers yes yes you're right you're right exactly and that's what usually would happen and that's why you would notice changes or differences because um, the novels might be based upon a like an earlier iteration of the script of the movie so it's kind of interesting that yeah they they produce them at the same time and then so different in their uh, style and what their kind of uh, motivation was for telling the story because Arthur C. Clarke, during the writing process, was like, oh, I can see a whole universe here that I want to expand out and create sequels. But Kubrick, 
I mean, he didn't care about that stuff. He just wanted to make a perplexing, a different kind of sci-fi movie, not something that would be followed up or just kind of digested this one experience. And even though everything you're saying is accurate, I still think, though, it's, it's nice that, you know, the, the book, again, I haven't read it. This is just my thumbnail interpretation. It has so much incredible detail in it about the space, the spaces that the story takes place in, especially um, on the ship or the station or whatever. So even though Kubrick's style or approach to this narrative is, the, is as you say, it's still nice, though, that at the same time, there's still so much attention to detail in the visuals, the set pieces, art design, even if not everything is fully explained um, that you see. But it's nice that it's still there, even though Kubrick is doing his interpretation. Because you could imagine someone else, a different creative, um, not only being as abstract with the storytelling, but as abstract with the visuals as well. Like you could imagine someone else, um, like for the sets and and costumes, like dumbing down the details. Hmm. If they were telling a more stylized version of the story. Hmm. You know what I mean? Like you could imagine this. I don't want to actually, but you could imagine this having like a visual aesthetic, especially since it's the late sixties, you can imagine the same story being interpreted through a prism of like the visual style of Barbarella. I knew you're going there. Yeah. <laughs> but couldn't you though? Like imagine that someone would make that. Um, or it reminds me of the unproduced. Um, <laughs> what's the other version of Dune that was never produced? Yeah, Jodorowsky's. I was thinking of that too. Yeah, exactly. You know, couldn't you see that? Like in someone else's hands that this could come out like that. Oh, and I, I'm pretty sure Barbarella was this, this same year or maybe it was 67. But that's weird to think that that movie came out right around this. Like the, in terms of the look, it's crazy how different they are <laughs> and how much of a leap this yeah, is. Yeah, Barbarella is 68. Um, and wow. of course, everything about it oozes 1968 sci-fi, like the way you'd imagine it would be. Yes. And then this. This yeah, yeah feels timeless. Yes. Yeah, pretty crazy. Oh, man. I need to when i have my um whenever i create my um film festival series that will never happen that's gonna be <laughs> one of my double feature nights oh and if there's one thing that does date this then i think it's funny too i don't even think it was a joke i think it was just them not really thinking forward i do love that right before the uh a haywood haywood floyd goes to take his phone call we see in the corner of the frame there's just a guy sitting in the space station reading a newspaper i was like oh look at that Still newspapers, even in the on a moon base. Like, where are they printing that? Yeah, <laughs> still find it quaint. Maybe it was, it like was hipster, quaint. hipster edition or something. Maybe like like the revival of vinyl or something. Like, yeah, I saw a guy reading a newspaper the other day. Yeah, but he's is is not a moon base. I mean, who's shipping that over to the moon? <laughs> Man, it's crazy to me how I read the newspaper almost like every day of my life from like third grade until end of college can you guys imagine well that's how you got news back then of course either that or you watch the tv or listen to the radio i know but but plenty of my contemporaries did not read the newspaper every day i mean maybe older people but not people my age um but i read the newspaper almost i got when i used to fly um like in the late 90s early 2000s i would always pick up a newspaper at the airport and like read it on the plane 
Yeah, I always used to pick them up on the bus to school, and I'd read them on the way to school. I always liked that. Oh, and of course, the biggest thing for me back then, besides the TV guide, um, uh, the movie listings. Oh my gosh. <laughs> that, that was a big thing, and that's why um, I fell in love with um, Roger Ebert's columns um, early on. Ah. And, that, and that's also why when the internet became a thing, the very first thing that I would look up on a regular basis on the internet was was roger roger ebert columns like that for like the first two years of the of my internet experience it was pretty much just looking at roger ebert columns yeah the spice girls that was that was my very first search engine search but for actually using the internet it was to read movie reviews why do i remember that (laughs) i don't know uh but um yeah, where else, where else to go here? Oh, I guess I was curious. Um, outside of whatever happens in uh, 2010 or or onward, uh, why did you guys think that Hal broke down in this? Because that was another thing I, I pondered over many times when I first saw this, is what, what caused this, this malfunction, if it is a malfunction. Thoughts, Isaac? I don't have much myself, but... Yeah, yeah sorry, I know, yeah. Um, I'm trying to think, because I do know the explanation, I believe, from 2010, the movie... But I don't want to say it, obviously, because uh, you know I'd rather stick with this. Yeah, I actually can't remember it. <laughs> oh. uh, I don't know if the book says anything. I don't know if 2010 the novel says anything. The book certainly does. So, but no real explanation is given here, other than maybe the video at the end where, all, like, as they shut Hal, as Dave shuts Hal down, uh, or deactivates Hal, excuse me, the video plays maybe there's something there not what he says but like maybe some it's because of that i I don't i don't know fully but there's no real reason at least you know through exposition given like why he's acting up um it just could be either like i don't know he like detected the monolith and the model touched him and he got like human emotions and then he like was like oh i can do it myself (laughs) no obviously not that but Maybe there was some form of like logical error somewhere. Yeah, if if I remember correctly, um, in that first little exposition video package that we get when it's setting up the crew, I think even in that, Hal very proudly says like, "Oh, no 900 series has ever failed. Like they never made 9, an 000. error." Nine thousand. Nine thousand. And so he seems to have this like intense pride. And then when he, at least this is what I get from it. I'm not sure either. I don't, I don't really have a full understanding of it. But when he starts to, to kind of question, like, hey, like, something about this mission seems off, and Dave's like, hey, wait a minute, like, is this... Are you putting together the psychology report? And there's, like, a brief little pause. And Hal's like, of course. And then immediately after that, he detects his little fault. So I almost wondered if it was him, like, just expressing nervousness, and then it's screwing up. And then after that, he could never admit that the 9000 series could have a fault. And so he took it to his most extreme and just, like, broke down because of it. But I don't necessarily know why. I don't I don't know what that is supposed to be saying exactly. Yeah, I've always been perplexed by this um, for the longest. Um, I never really had too many cogent thoughts about it until earlier today. Um, hmm. Especially when I was younger, a lot younger. Like I just kind of took Hal as the way the younger me 
also took Ian Holm in uh, Alien, which because when I was a kid, I just thought he went crazy, um, like randomly. Uh, Ian Holm and Alien. I know there's he had, there's actually a reason. I mean, I didn't yeah. discover that till I was older. But when I was younger, I just thought he just went crazy because you know it just went haywire. And so then my primitive brain just put Hal in that same category as well for the longest. Um, and only in more recent times that I start to wonder um, what's really behind it. And it's always perplexed me. Uh, I, I could never really come up with a, a good explanation. Um, but aside from outside reading or viewing, um, just on the movie itself, I kind of had the same thought that Isaac said um, earlier today, which is perhaps Hal approaching the third monolith the monolith is having an effect on him as it does on humans. Hmm. Um, and perhaps that's what sparks his sentience. And then once he has that sentience and imagine a version of like data, when he first starts experiencing emotions, he doesn't know how to handle them. Um, and then, so somehow that's how it warps into this idea of sort of self-preservation because now that he has sentience, he's starting to become, um, um, paranoid and, and wary of just the humans in general. That's interesting. And so, for, so maybe perhaps out of his fear, it sets off some type of self-preservation thought. And so, yeah, I, I was just having that thought earlier today, similar to what I said. Well, I mean, it's not. Uh, that was just me quickly thinking of like a uh, 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 obvious answer. Uh, it's not really. I have to watch the movie a number of yeah. times to. But, uh, but when theory crafting and head cannon creating. It, it it's very plausible, I think, that perhaps these monoliths just have that type of awakening effect in general. Well, I mean, if we yeah. want to go there, sorry, Caleb. And, and you could say, you could say, like the so, let's say the monoliths do have this um, ability. So, oh, why didn't the cheetah become self-aware, or why didn't the tapir? Hmm. Well, similar to what Caleb said about how you don't find the second key or monolith until you accomplish a certain um, cap uh, capacity in, in like interstellar travel. So maybe it affected the hominids because um, their brains had reached a certain level of being open to the mm -hmm. effects of the monolith. And perhaps it affected dolphins as well. <laughs> and a few others, elephants maybe. <laughs> um, we will. But they didn't have hands and fingers. Yeah. But anyway, um, and so maybe how is again like uh, a primordial up-and-coming species like like the hominids so the monolith could affect how the way it affected the hominids yeah my only counter would be is uh you would think the monolith would know that this is a species that would reach a dead end it could never evolve to uh the star baby if that's what we're well now we're assuming that the monolith has sentience and is not just like a device yeah, which is a question. That's true. That is it is a question. question. Um, but consider the fact that when the hominids, what the hominids first did with the knowledge of tool usage or, or whatever, is they killed. Exactly. What's what's the th first thing that Hal does if he if he did touch the forbidden fruits? Murder, like murder pretty much like all four, four fifths of the crew. Exactly. Perfectly, hmm. perfectly congruent in my mind. Yeah, no, that's interesting. I never considered that aspect of that. That's that's definitely an interesting reading. 
And it's interesting, too, because I'm not a huge sci-fi reader or reader in general um, these days um, or in my adult life. But I did dip my toe into the first three books of the Enders um, game series, um, <laughs> which I found incredibly interesting. Uh, but the first three are all quite different from each other, even though it's a continuing story. Um, but um, in the in the second Ender's Game novel, um, it centers a lot about Enter encountering, I mean Ender, encountering a tribal primitive type of alien species and, and dealing with um, antics that happen with them. And then in the third novel, um, there's an AI, uh, there's an AI on Earth or somewhere, and the mo- the third novel is about the AI, like, coming online, so to speak, with sentience and dealing with its its new existence. So, again, these are, like, heavy themes that that um, that story makers are, are heavily obsessed with. No, but I, I think how Isaac tied it together at the end there is actually, I mean, I think it bolter, bolsters the theory heavily that Hal kind of does the same thing um, that the... Uh, yep that the primitives did i'm still not 100 percent on my own theory i'm just again like i said i kind of threw that out there in like a no, panic no, of it, like uh yeah. here we go it's pocket sand no yeah there, there's enough pieces there totally makes sense yeah definitely will have to consider next time i watch it because yeah I, i'm still i still remain unsure and i guess we'll find out as we eventually get over to 2010 what the <laughs> uh that movie posits as the answer but <laughs> but not for this movie um, but do we have any other little dangling threads we want to cover before we uh, come around to the end? Well, if Eric, you don't have anything else, let me, uh, you know, really about give give me twenty minutes or so, and I'll uh, oh, I'll be finished. <laughs> sure. Uh, so first off, to answer Eric's question all the way back, it's called self fulfilling prophecy uh, when it comes to uh, when, it, when, it, when it comes to AI and humans and the whole kill robots idea. No, you're right. I was thinking of another term, though, but you're right about that as well. Fair enough. Um, Caleb's question about the ending uh, with, with you know, what, what Dave is experiencing as he enters the monolith. Uh, I thought beginning of the universe. I thought, like, the Big Bang. Uh, like, maybe not the earliest ideas of the Big Bang theory, but... Like well, visualized. I mean, that was that was my thought. Where the monolith was taking him throughout time, and then he like saw the birth of the Earth almost. Yeah, I was more asking what you think happened after he becomes like this the star baby. What's that meant to say? What okay. the future is going to be? But, but no, yeah, I I kind of agree. Yeah, I think it's it's a massive expansion. This is what you think reality is. This is what you think the world is. Let me show you that you you really don't know yet. You're 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 a child, and you're about to see what the reality really is yeah metaphorically i i agree with what isaac just said yeah um wholeheartedly and then to answer your other question caleb with regards to uh why both lloyd or is it yeah dave frank yeah frank Frank, and uh frank and dave feel so kind of muted or, or dehumanized or desensitized or just like cold uh, in comparison to like all the other people, but of course you guys said that it might be the acting. Uh, it's the I guess the ob- like, maybe the first sign of it, but like the obvious idea of uh, isolationism in space uh, and the fact that 
this goes into my whole belief of like we shouldn't be up there we we we, we <laughs> like it's inhuman for and that's that's another thing where it's like how cold and vacuumous this like the realm of space is or outer space is, excuse me and what it does to us and we've we've depicted this in uh, other medias of course since 2001 i think this one at least started it potentially maybe s- subtly uh, with showing how like interstellar did a good job of this as well of like you know you're in space and i forget which character it was eric knows exactly what i'm talking about but they like no i think it was um what's his what's his name the main character uh he he puts on like what is it the uh like air or something like that just a just a on his headset he puts like nature uh sounds uh in the background just to like oh es- yeah. es- escape from the isolation of space um that's that's what i'm thinking of where the reason they're like i guess so again cold is because they're the only two people on board and they have this computer so again there's nobody around to like interact with and it's just so life is kind of dull you can't really go anywhere you're stuck there it's not solitary confinement but like i wonder if i mean i I don't look this up obviously i wonder if people in the international space station have a similar thought process as well um Uh. well i think there's credence certainly to what isaac is saying like i could totally see everything you said and especially when it comes to military types um and especially the the type of people who get involved in like the astronaut program or things of that nature not everyone but you'll definitely like it there's definitely a bigger percentage of people who fall into that who have that who have that type of personality that they just come off like that. Like, in other words, that career path tends to bring in more people who naturally have that type of um, temperament. Um, I'm also thinking of, like, historically, like, um, Air Force test pilots and people like that. Now, of course, I'm generally speaking, not everyone's like that. Um, but but it definitely draws out those types. So it, it's also very plausible that one or both of them could also just be that kind of person on a regular day and then even more so under the conditions that isaac described yeah and i I always thought it was interesting the scene when hal is is coming to dave and he's like hey can i can i talk to you like about a personal subject and he starts bringing up his his own nervousness and questions like oh there's there's these rumors surrounding the mission like do you think any of this could be true and dave is so cold and robotic like he has no like, he has no desire to question anything surrounding the mission. He's like, is this just for the psych thing? Like, and, and how immediately, like, closes up about it. And the fact, I, I always thought it was interesting, too, that it's almost like they're the robots. And how, since Hal's in charge of everything, Hal could be like, oh, there's something that seems wrong. And then they have to go about all the, do all the busy work to kind of check his math. Something about that, too, I, I thought was interesting. But But also, to expand upon that, you know, maybe another theme that Kubrick was playing with was that you know going along with what we've been saying remember um, Hal is like a child emotionally and mentally um, and obviously Frank and Dave are human adults um, and so maybe he's trying to highlight a theme of like a child parent relationship or adult child um, adult slash child because um, think about 
you know, when young children interact with an adult um, and young children always ask these like amazingly open and exploratory type questions. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times random adults will just be like, oh, you know, like kind of brush it off, give a short answer or just like, why is that even important mm-hmm. type of thing? But also to extend it even further, when we were making the comparisons of like um, the hominids and and how being like a more primitive version of let's say humans or the alien species so so how is like freaking out right i mean when he's quote unquote coming online in this part we're talking about and he has all these questions how did the humans on the lunar base react when they discovered the second monolith did they have paranoia were they kind of freaked out about this signal pointing in the direction of jupiter yeah so they had like a similar, they had their version of like the howl reaction. And then why did they not inform the crew until, you know, they were supposed to arrive? Perhaps because they were afraid it would affect them as well if they had the knowledge, which Hal had, which obviously affected him. So ironically, they kept the knowledge with Hal because he's the computer and they kept it from the humans. But that had the unexpected effect of jacking up Hal when he quote-unquote came online okay that that's interesting so you, you so you think Hal knew what the the actual mission was well i guess that's a that's a, a leap of faith that someone would have to take um but it but it's but it's not implausible because he is a computer and he probably had access to that message already that that um that uh dave didn't get till the end so Hal probably had to sit on that knowledge and it probably didn't really affect him or his function until he became enlightened. Okay. So so do you think when he was asking Dave about that, that he was trying to tell him maybe? Or? I don't know about that. I mean, I have no idea. Yeah, because I, I didn't get the... I got the impression that maybe he was more willing to kind of look beyond what, what these guys were and ask questions and try to learn more. And so he's like, oh, I heard these weird rumors, like, Dave, do you like have any ideas? Because then when I guess I guess they do say that they kept the information with the Hal Nine Thousand. I just didn't think that it was released. I thought it was more like a time uh, release message. And again, this just came to me in real time. I haven't sussed this out or pondered. That's on fair. This. <laughs> this just came out, but it. But again, I told you guys I just I learned something new about Interstellar like six months ago. Yeah. A lot of the things that have come out in this conversations are crystallized thoughts I've never had about 2001 until today. Sure. Yeah, and I'll say as well, uh, yeah, this how part of the the mystery has always been the part that's the most difficult for me to wrap my head around. Every now and again, I feel like, oh, I've got a solidified reading. And then I watch it again, it's like, oh, I, that piece actually doesn't fit with my reading. And so it's it's definitely always perplexed me. And that that's cool. I, I like that about this movie, that it always... You know, keeps me guessing, even though I feel like some of the more basic plot elements feel less mystified. There's always those bits. And that's why I am, even though me and Isaac, we, we, we want to cover 2010, I do remember that they had some bullshit answer and some more uh, straightforward explanation for all this. And so I've always avoided revisiting it because I, I tried to forget all the stuff they spill out there. <laughs> oh, I was always... 
I was always able to take it as like a companion piece, yet at the same time separate and different. That's fair. It's kind of like it's kind of like how I can deal with Strange New Worlds versus the original series, or oh, okay, I still have difficulty associating Queen of the Damned with the movie with Interview with a Vampire. Oof. Um, but usually, I can section things off and and like let them exist separately, even though they're connected in some kind of way. Yeah, I think, uh, Isaac, we recently covered Phantasm, and I was saying how that, that was another piece of actually my early discovery of surrealist film and really getting into it, but the sequels from that just go in a straightforward direction and they drop all the surrealist elements and they try to make sense of what happened in the first one, and that's always kind of ruined my readings of the first movie because I'm so clouded by those sequels. I think I had a similar thing with 2010 and that's why I tried to wipe it from my mind <laughs> so but weirdly and it's arguable and debatable you know the, the star trek film series arguably gets much more interesting when they get more straightforward and when they veer away from the 2001 tone of the motion picture yeah except for me where the motion picture is my favorite star trek i film. know i know <laughs> I, I, I get it i get it i get it but i know that's a very unusual point of view i don't understand why though <laughs> it's not it is definitely on the the minority side minority opinion but i definitely every now and then see people who echo echo your same thoughts on that in particular um did you have more yeah. isaac oh plenty do not worry so i'm ready I have for plenty it. i like this. um sure so there was a piece of music i don't remember which one it was and it was i think it used maybe twice throughout the film uh but i was like okay wait a minute my brain's going like i've heard this before and not just from this movie but i'm like i've heard this before from another film i was like oh man i know what it is so it's either jerry goldsmith or our um eric's favorite composer himself good old horner himself <laughs> um because there's a track here where i think similar to what john williams does one of the two was influenced by and they used an alien or aliens and i can't remember which piece it was uh which so i'm gonna have to go back and watch what part of the movie was it yeah do you remember like the corresponding scene i don't remember that's the thing i i, I cannot remember like for the life of me because i have to listen to the what was i have to listen to the score itself what was the mood that it evoked it was like a like see it was either is either when they're outside of the atmospheric processing station once the dropship crashes or it's when uh, the truckers are making their way towards the derelict spacecraft. Oh, we're talking about Alien. I was a like, oh, well, either okay. one. I, I can't <laughs> tell. I can't tell which one. If it's either Alien, yeah. Sorry, uh, I can't tell if it's like Alien or Aliens. But there was clearly something that was uh, one of the two composers, whichever one, uh, was influenced by. I want to say it was Horner, but I, I could be wrong on that. But I was like, oh, this sounds something like uh, from Alien or yes. Aliens. Do you remember if the piece of music you're thinking of was it always falling around with the monolith? No, so we hear the same piece of music three times in this. No, monolith. it wasn't that. It wasn't that. It was something else. Mm. Oh, okay. And was it slow or sinister or? There was some sinister vibes to it. It's, again, it's not the alien theme where it's that haunting uh, right, score. Right. It's it's something. It's something so minor and insignificant. I was like. There's no like th this is so like w random like it cannot be like referenced in aliens or used as a like oh let's use this like chord progression uh for a haunting theme or whatever i was like it could be that could be a chord pro progression but 
but definitely sonically just in general there's a lot in common um with those first two alien movies and this absolutely at certain times oh and of course let's let's be honest here yes the beginning of superman or the motion picture uh not motion picture but richard john or superman does john williams kind of clearly uh makes a call back to um the subnight that's fake zarathustra thank you very much sir uh when he when we are introduced to krypton that's interesting it's been a while I think I watched that last in 2015, so I really need to rewatch that. But that, that's interesting. I thought it was, wait, 15 or 18? Oh, oh yeah, we saw it in the theater. That's right. Okay, that would have been the last time I saw it. Yeah, you and I saw it in the theater. No, I'm always reminded of, of the sound alike of like Williams' um, Star Wars scores um, with the uh, the original um, the Planets Symphony. Yep. Yep. Really good one. Yeah, and and I I was fortunate enough that I discovered it on my own randomly, like not because I read it. Mm -hmm. Um, I just had randomly bought a classic CD, classical CD, um, like in the early nineties. And it just happened to be, it happened to have the planets like on the B side. I know there's no B side on a CD, but in the listing, (laughs) it was like the B side. Um, And I remember listening to it going, holy shit, this is star Wars. Um, So I got to have that moment on my own without discovering it somewhere else. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, but keep it going, Isaac. Keep it going. This is just like Phantasm, actually, when we did that review. <laughs> and I was done, and I was like, oh, okay, let's move to Final Thoughts. And then, yeah, you had like 20 minutes more of material to go over. <laughs> uh, I don't know. Maybe this might be like my last thing. I don't know. Let's like think of something else. Um, but but this one was brought to me by, he remembers this guy, Bennett the Sage, when he was talking about uh, the god of manga himself. Uh, mm. One... I believe this is true. Obviously, one can look it up. Uh, one Dr. Uh, Osamu Tezuka was potentially, uh, uh, was allegedly speaking, Kubrick himself was going to like made an extension to him, stating he wanted him to be part of the art direction for this uh, movie, which oh. would have been insane so hey my uh astro boy reference actually was pro- prominent or at least was uh, prevalent excuse me oh that's oh I, I i have a vague memory of you saying this before but i didn't know about that that's interesting um but of course the reason of court being is tezuka himself did not want to uh go overseas <laughs> much like uh and or at least maybe not overseas but he didn't want to uh spend time away from uh, doing his uh, comics because that man was <laughs> devoted to one thing and that is comics. So, um, yeah, that's that was a neat, cool thing. Yeah, they're gonna say he hated flying. He's like, no, I won't come work on this. Uh, yeah, this film with a master filmmaker like Kubrick. I don't know about that, but uh, speaking of comics, though, I guess there is the uh, other person I should oh. mention that uh, see there is well actually okay first of all uh, I want to go I, I I thought of something when Eric was like uh, oh yeah you know so it's like these two character or these two people uh, both uh, Arthur C Clarke and then Stanley Kubrick they they made like the same the same story but in two different mediums maybe that's not what he said but then I thought wait a minute so what if we had a radio drama. And then what if we had a television series and it's the same like story or same idea, but told through like four separate mediums. It's like, wow, what would that even I'm like, okay, what would 2001, the video game look like? Oh no, let's, yeah, now you're going too far. 
that's more it's more indie but back to my uh back to my yeah comic book what i was saying before well there's this thing called doctor who doomsday which i will say no more about (laughs) um so speaking of when it comes to god of not god of comics but uh the king himself uh, on the other side of the world, I guess. So we have, we have. I went, I went from Japan. We, have, we started in England. Now over to New York, or at least America, somewhere, somewhere in America. We have the King himself, Jack Kirby, who, mm. in I believe it was 1976, uh, actually, or at least you know, around that time, got to do uh, the comic version of 2001. Yeah, it's a holy grail of mine. I've I've, I've always sought out this. Uh... I think it was a, like a 10 or 12 part series. I've always wanted to track it down, but just could not find it. And yes, for all those who know, uh, it eventually actually has like, uh, what was it? Just like, I don't remember if it was Planet of the Apes that kept going. I believe it was. Uh, Kirby would continue the series onward with Mar. This is Marvel, by the way. Um, he would continue to uh, work on it. And eventually out from that came Machine Man for all those who know. For some reason, I thought you were going to bring up um, the New Gods uh, DC comic yeah. by Kirby. No, 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 no. That's 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 after, or that's before. Excuse me. Well, excuse me. Right, but I thought you were going to mention New Gods, and then, and then, did he do Inhumans as well? In well, he movie? did Inhumans in the '60s. Like, okay, so Inhumans comes first. Same with Thor, and I could send you a yep. video, uh, Eric, if you want, because there's is a Inhumans whole, like, first? Yeah, because they're well. Well, they come from they they come from Fantastic Four. Yeah, they're before New Gods because they left Marvel to DC and then. Right, I knew that part. I knew that part. I guess I'm thinking of Inhumans, the comic series, not Inhumans: The Origin. I guess is what I'm thinking about. Uh, and if you're thinking of the Eternals, that's ah, oh, the that, Eternals. That's, that's how I was thinking. Okay, of. so so here's the thing, Eric. Yeah. With this, this is a. So I'm getting, I'm echoing somebody else. This is not like, you know, I information I came across like myself to research, but it's from somebody <laughs> else, a video I watched. Uh, Caleb knows who I'm talking about. Basically, Kirby was like kind of, you know, going in a different direction than everybody else was, I guess. Right. He was exploring these themes about right. godhood and, exactly. and what, what gods can do. And so he had this idea in Marvel with... Uh, what is it with uh, with Thor? He was exploring it with, I believe, in Thor. Right. And then he yeah, uh, jumps ship to DC because of a falling out that he has with Smile and Stanley, and <laughs> uh, he then creates the fourth world. He creates Apocalypse and New Genesis, the New Gods, uh, and also does a lot of other things there. But he also creates the Forever People uh, in that in that time as well. So he does all that, and then. I guess he was going to finish uh, what is it DC like prevented him from like reaching his goals. I think it no, he wanted to make a graphic novel. That's what it was. He wanted to make an actual like graphic novel, not like, you know, issues, but like a full on sure. graphic novel. And then uh they were like no, you can't do that. So then he jumped ship again. I don't know if it was for that reason, but he then jumped ship and went back to Marvel and created the Eternals and then I guess continued on that story after that. And he also made I don't know if it was the same thing or if I believe he made the comic version of Zardoz 
Or maybe I'm wrong on that. Oh my know. god. What the maybe fuck? I'm, maybe I'm wrong on that. I don't, I don't remember. I need to know about this. Maybe that's maybe I'm going like that. That's out of nowhere. But I thought there was a Zardoz connection there. Yeah. That's Kale's favorite 007 film. But, but, <laughs> but, but there you go. There's like the, the holy trinity of what Kirby was up to. And then, of course, he does 2001, which is more of an exploration. And he's the, the king himself is uh, made for that kind of material. Yeah, I'm so, so curious to read that. I'm very very fascinated by that what looks like there oh i don't know i don't know if there was a zardas comic i can't no there was definitely a zardas comic but i'm trying to figure out who made it i mean maybe it wasn't kirby and i apologize for that i thought there was something to do with zardas and it was connected to like either the eternals or um what's it called the uh uh fourth world well i'm color me intrigued color me intrigued but I feel like we've gotten quite away from the film. Uh, yeah, maybe we should round out to, to final thoughts here. Uh, unless you guys have any more tangents to go off of. <laughs> uh, you know, I only have a little ta- tangent, which was sure. that um, I, I've always... They've, another thing that's always just been connected in my brain, but I don't know where it goes, is um, the actor who plays Frank, Gary Lockwood. Once I recognized him in... Um, the second pilot of Star Trek, the original series. Uh, what is it? Where no men have gone before? Where no man mm-hmm. has gone before? Yeah. Once I recognize it was the same actor, those two things have always been connected in my head, that episode and this movie. And I know it's a stretch, but in that movie, he becomes someone who becomes a human who goes to the next level. Um, and, and antics ensue in Star Trek. And I always thought it was so interesting and strange that he's in both of these things. And of course, that that came out in uh, 66, well, a little bit off from this. But still, I always thought it was just so interesting that he was in both. And so every time I see his face, I think of the other thing. If I'm watching Star Trek, I think of 2001 and vice versa. No, that's interesting. I didn't realize that connection. But now that you say it, I can see it in my head. Yeah, once you see his face, you can't unsee it. And similar to when we were talking about the contrast and look of Barbarella to this, I also had that same thought with where no man has gone before and this. And it's like, it's the same guy. But in one, he's like, he looks like he's in the future. I don't mean chronologically. I mean, in terms of filmmaking. Yes. He he looks like a time traveler in filmmaking. Because how does he step out of this thing that looks like Barbarella era and then jump into this thing that looks like it was made 20 years later, but he hasn't aged? Yeah, I have that same thought every time I watch uh, Black Christmas with Keir DeLay playing one of the uh, the characters in it. Because he totally looks like a guy just existing in the 70s in that movie. And then I watch this and I'm like, I, I just I can't connect the two. It's so strange. <laughs> but uh, a power to Kubrick. I mean, he, he created something that feels timeless in its way. Only a couple little bits really remind you that it's the 60s, but mostly, yeah, it feels like it could be any time. Yeah, well, even though obviously there's a little bit of the 60s aesthetic a little bit, like like with the um, design of the, the Hilton Lounge or like the suits. They have that very um, tight-fitting suit of like the early 60s. Um, even though you can see that kind of relationship, but, it, but because everything is done so well, it just feels like they're in the future wearing like throwback-inspired styles. You know what I mean? Hmm. Or that the chairs are chairs of the future that are like throwbacks to the 60s. The chairs in the Hilton. Yeah, that's fair. Wasn't the ship going to the satellites 
Pan Am. Yep. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Sure okay. Well, the, well, there you go. There's another like anachronism. But again, I don't care. Like that just seems not even oh, quite. Yeah. I, I think I find, yeah. I find that cool. That is often noted. Well, I can suspend my disbelief. I don't care. Like it's just, it. Like the the film is just more cool for that reason. Hey, maybe maybe it came back. I just watched a movie from this year with the MGM logo in front of it, and it said an Amazon company at the bottom. So maybe somebody just bought the name for Pan American years later. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that, yeah. I always, I, I mean, yeah, they were still a thing when I was a kid. And so, uh, yeah, Pan Am was big. They were big back in the day. And, yeah, there's a lot of anachronisms like that, like in, our, I think, like Blade Runner and things like that. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but I guess rounding down to uh, to final thoughts, I guess I'll start with you, Eric. Uh, what do you think of this this feature film here, two thousand one, uh, Space Odyssey? Well, if ever there was a movie that I was afraid to do a podcast on, this might have been on the peak of the mountain, um, mm. because you know there's things like Star Wars, and so. I don't know. Um, <laughs> Perhaps if someone did a pot, yeah, The Godfather. Like, there's certain movies that you're just like, what are we going to do here? Because what are we going to possibly add to the conversation that hasn't already been said somewhere else? Mm. Um, there's, there's like, it feels like there's nothing new to illuminate. Like, there's no new original thoughts to have. And so I think this was on the top of the mountain for me of just like, oh God, this is, this is, um, metaphorically terrifying to me um it feels like an impossible task um but that's the beauty of having co-hosts or other people to bounce things off because um it's kind of the magic of podcasting or just talking to friends about a common interest a lot came out of this i was not expecting like i said i had a lot of new thoughts on this movie some that came from my independent research preparing but more that came from the synergy or coming together and and that's why i fell in love with kubrick films in the very very first place mm-hmm. it, it wasn't necessarily about the technical achievement in filming or framing or shooting or anything like that i mean yeah those all played a part but the biggest thing to me and draws drew me into tarantino films and, and other makers nolan is is the rewatchability because of the more like the the levels of the onion to get to and a lot of times those are my most favorite movies are the ones where you can find a new discovery on the 15th viewing (laughs) um it's just it's just magical and again this is not at all my favorite movie or even my favorite kubrick movie but i tend to agree with the the popular sentiment that it's possibly the best or most influential movie of all time. Um, or arguably you could say, even though it doesn't rank that high in my personal favorites, I do think it's, it's worthy of that, of that distinction. Nice. And I'll say, uh, before I jump to Isaac, I had the same fears coming in. I was like, Oh man, like this is one of those movies that I wish I didn't have to do a podcast on. Cause I don't know what the hell I'm going to say. And it's funny doing this right after doing uh, this movie called Redline. Me and Isaac just covered it over the weekend. And I told him right before we started, I was like, I, I wish I could rescind me suggesting to do this because I have no idea how we could possibly discuss this. So, 
So two back to back. But yeah, I, I agree with you, Eric. I feel like it would. Yeah, came came out easier than I was expecting. Oh, definitely. Uh, but how about you, Isaac? What are your your final thoughts for this feature? If anybody has a heavy breathing fetish, well, this movie definitely <laughs> uh, definitely has that for you there. So that's why I was aroused. <laughs> totally. Uh, if you don't get like you know turned on by Darth Vader, well, this one definitely has that too. <laughs> Um, in all seriousness, I was, yeah, I, I wasn't like these guys, uh, where I was, you know, kind of nervous. I, I'm nervous about other stuff, uh, other things to podcast or commentate on or discuss. <laughs> uh, this one was not one of them surprisingly, but I definitely did not think we were going to go in these directions and I'm very satisfied because honestly, yeah, I, th- I feel like, you know, I, I have a, uh, I'm not saying I've touched the monolith and or like, you know, found the first key, but. I definitely feel like I have a better understanding of this film now, and I'm, I'm very pleased with that. Um, especially with, uh, what is it, with, with the whole, like, uh, romanticism angle and approach that he was taking, and Eric's whole dissection of Greek mythology and the Pantheon itself being, uh, yeah. in, in with, with when you read between the lines of the movie, I'm so happy, like, you know, uh, you brought that up, Eric, because uh, yeah, no, that's it. Very much separates itself from the book as well. Uh, so yeah, I'm I'm pleased with this. I will uh, definitely enjoy watching this again at some point, and hopefully learn even further stuff without reading it, uh, without realizing it. But perhaps <laughs> I will uh, give the book and comic uh, a chance first before I uh, try anything. So I will do that before I rewatch it again next time. Caleb, your final thoughts. For this film or at least for you know this read of the film excuse me <laughs> yeah i still i still always find new things when i come back and like eric echoed or like eric said that's always such a, a great experience with the film not to feel like oh I've, I've already found everything here you know there's there's nothing to really come back to no, i never have that with the 2001 but i i also agree it's it's not my favorite film i it used i used to love it more than i do now um i i just feel like Doctor Strangelove is so much more of a rewarding experience. It's so fun. This one does take a little bit out of me every time I watch it. It's uh... <laughs> oh, definitely. Yeah, there, I... there's. Oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I'll just say I, I I can rarely watch it start to finish. Um, I can only watch it like in chunks. Yeah, when I used to watch it, I used to have such a emotional kind of a feeling that it would sit with me for days and days afterwards. And, and that was just too much after a while. So, um, But incredible visually. We've already discussed how it feels timeless in its way. I think it's such an incredible achievement for Kubrick. And I, I'll, be, I'll be curious to see if he can make a film that feels more perfect than this. Because as much as I love Dr. Strangelove and some of the previous films, this one just feels so... Just like everything was firing all cylinders. I'm, I'm very curious to see if he can get to quite this, this peak again. Uh, even though I love many of the films to come as well just yeah looking forward to it <laughs> if i could have a final final thought because you made me think of something else sure i mean reflecting on this movie um talking about the style when you said like it's you know it comes across as like perhaps the, the most perfect movie that kubrick may have made and i was thinking of you know there's, there's notable directors who emulate his style in some kind of way not exactly but you can tell how they're influenced like the mm-hmm. obvious nolan but even further, a lot of people know that I'm not the biggest on the horror genre um, in general, but I'm always trying to get more into it or be more exposed to it. 
to find more that I like within it. But of the horror movies that have really spoken to me up to this point, especially some of the newer ones, um, I definitely, I'm definitely drawn to the, the horror movies that seem to emulate this tone. And maybe that's the tone that is so chilling during that howl scene in particular, or which is emulated in the original alien in many moments of extended suspense. Um, but, um, the guys who made like Midsummer and lighthouse, I know Eggers and I can't remember like the other guy's name. Yeah. Ari Aster. Yeah. They feel so like as if they're acolytes of, um, Kubrick in some kind of way. And even, um, last year's movie, uh, Tar, hmm. is that what it was called? Yeah, Tar. Uh, Kate Blanchett, which of course was made by an actual um, Kubrick acolyte of sorts. <laughs> Those movies are always, I mean, generally speaking, you have to go in with like a, a cerebral type of disposition, um, but at the same time, they set up such a heightened intensity and 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 foreboding um, within them. Even Tar, which is obviously not even a horror at all. Mm-hmm. But and I'm not saying those are the only kinds of movies I I like, but there's something about that element that gets under your skin, um, um, like in your psyche, in your brain. Um, that yeah, there's there's some kind of magic there in this movie. Um, like I just learned about the flavor called umami in 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 food, um, and and how it was like a discovery and it's, it's the flavor that just makes certain foods yummy. And so for me, this kind of style in filmmaking is a certain kind of umami that could be sprinkled into, um, other genres, other films, and it'll just, it'll set off my synapses like in this Pavlovian way. Hmm. Yeah. I didn't comment. Isaac kept mentioning that it felt like a horror movie. Yeah, I, I, I absolutely agree. It does feel uh, unnerving in, in certain ways in, in numerous parts. And of course, as a big horror fan, that always attracted me this to, to this movie as well. Um, but yeah, I guess I guess that rounds us down to the, the end of this discussion here. Thank you, Isaac, for joining me and Eric for this uh, this series here. Very, uh, very happy to have you on. Pleasure. Thank you very much for inviting me, sir. I, I live for this. Yeah, and very much looking forward to see what comes our way in the 70s, because... Yeah, continuing to advance in different ways and lots and lots of different types of films uh, going forward. But uh, yeah, I guess catch us on the next one. Peace.
Which, by the way, I'll, I'll just say that MGM thing, it was so jarring to see suddenly at the bottom of the screen an Amazon company. I was like, oh, that that just, that feels weird. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 they need to change the, um, what do you call that um, logo? What do you call a logo sequence in a movie? Um, uh, Good question. You, I, I know there's a term for it, but, you know, Columbia has theirs, whatever. Real? No, I don't know. But whatever it's called, the one that they've been using for Amazon Pictures, they need to change it because I think it looks horribly, horribly dated. Like it reminds me of like the um, UI for like the iPhone one, like the original iPhone, like with the icons on on that UI. And I've never liked it um, watching it at home on a 4K television when I'm about to watch an Amazon film. But I think I saw an Amazon film at the cinema last year. I can't remember which one it was. And it's even more abhorrent to me on a um, on a big screen because it's it's such amateurish like 3D CGI. Um, it's the opposite of the HBO logo I was talking about earlier. It's the exact opposite because it looks so backwards, um, and it offends me highly on the big screen because it looks like when you play um, a mobile game on a television just does not look right at all looks they need to change it if they're going to be serious like with their movie releases yeah it's funny because i don't mind it on the small screen but i also saw an amazon original movie last year and i remember being jarred by it too i was like oh wow that that breaks down <laughs> that does yeah not... I, I i feel like they have a roku like connected up in the booth um <laughs> yeah in the, in the cinema it's terrible it strikes me as like not serious seeing it on the big yes. screen yes yes 100% agree, and that's my editorial. 